This is exactly right. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Hello and welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I'm Kara Clank. And I'm Lisa Traeger. Uh, we talk SVU crimes, uh, celeb guests. It's really a podcast that has it all. Um, <laughs> New York's hottest club. If you know, you know. Okay. So, Kara, I guess the biggest thing in our lives is we did see the Backstreet Boys. And oh my God. Uh, we did. Truly one of the best nights of my life. I can't stop smiling about it. And they really, just played hit after hit after, and then sneak in a new one from their new hit album, DNA. Yeah. And then <laughs> mention DNA. They brought their kids on stage. And like, I think for me, you know, we don't get, gen- like, I felt so surprised at the encore because they did I Want It That Way before the encore. Then they come back and they're doing a new song. I don't really know. And I'm like, what the fuck are they going to end on? What the fuck? What is going on? And then to surprise us with Larger Than Life and a full fireworks confetti show at the Hollywood yeah. Bowl. Like, are you fucking kidding me? It was really, it was really an experience. I had so much fun. And a shout out to our listener and friend, Sophia, who took us. Yes. Thank you, Sophia. <laughs> And uh, it was her birthday. Happy birthday, girl. And yeah, we had the best time. I I was in the same boat. I was like, you just can't. I want it that way. It's just like, how are we going to surpass it? And they fucking did it. They did it with true surprise. Nicole Richie was kitty corner from us. Oh my us. God. She, Nicole Richie was too, a bo- like a diagonal box in front of us. It was amazing. Yeah. So at first I saw Joel Madden and I went, she's got to be near. And then I saw Sophia Richie, her new fiance. I was happy to see them. And then some other chic friends, but I didn't know who they were. And then there was an enemy there as well, which I couldn't believe. I was sitting even closer. So between Nicole Richie and I was a person that I truly would care not to talk to. Um, and, and I know this person too. And they came up to me and they were like, hey. And then I was like, oh, hi, I haven't talked to you in so long. And like, we were sort of like just tugging. And then she goes, oh yeah, Lisa and I know each other from like back in the day. And I was like, oh yeah. And I put it together. I was like, oh yeah, these two fucking hate each other. And I don't I was think like, she realized she because she's like, we should be chill. I'm like, I fucking hate you. And, <laughs> but I hugged her. I gave her a cold hug, like a lifeless, emotionless hug. She gave her a hug and then like turned around and was like, this is the rest is for you, Kara. And I was like, okay, I'll handle this. Like, it was funny. It though. was just too much of a fantasy day. I'd never been to the Hollywood Bowl. Our seats were so close. Uh, it was just thrilling. It was our friend's birthday. I don't know. It was and, like truly one of the best But you kept saying like, I wonder if we'll run into anyone we know. And, and well, because I love running into people. I yes, do love and, running into people. And listeners have messaged us saying that they were there. Like we could have run into listeners. We could have run into friends, but we run into well, Lisa's enemy. <laughs> Nicole Richie made up for it. The Backstreet Boys yes. surpassed it. At dance moves, gimmicks, like the light up mic stands and the hat dance. Like, thank you. I don't like. Honestly, I was not not fully on the side of like, oh, is this going to be sad? Like we've had people say like, oh, is it sad? And it's like, 
we'll see what it's going to be like. And they're, the they opposite. are entertainers. Like, they are still so good at it. Like, I'm sorry. They're in their, like, early 40s, if anything. They're not well, dead. This is I'm what's just so saying, funny, like, I keep... their dance moves are killer. That's what I'm saying. The choreo well, was impressive. I keep telling my parents that. Sorry, I kept interrupting you. It's obviously very exciting. But, um... <laughs> it's okay. No, their choreo was incredible, like Kara was saying. So I keep telling my parents and my parents who are ancient are like, yeah, they're not old. And I'm treating it like, can you believe them dancing at full force? And they're like, yeah, they're young men. Um, I'm 84. Uh, so it is, yeah. they aren't, but they are working at, they are working so hard. But they're working at it. Singing, singing and great voices and full out choreo, full out. They, they, they killed it. And the Hollywood Bowl is just such like a, a magical place to see a concert. I love going oh to see God. stuff there. So I did have one humiliating moment where I did get soft serve and I felt like George from Seinfeld. And I was <laughs> like, this is upsetting. Also, I did run into a listener in the bathroom. Hello. We did have a very nice chat. And then she cupped my face and I went, did you wash your hands yet? And she went, no. <laughs> And that was a moment for me. <laughs> so thank you for that lovely moment. But then in a wild SVU turn of events, Sophia and I went to the comedy store to keep drinking, the party oh going. Yeah. And um, I like to sit in the back open area. It's like, whatever. It's kind of special. And I usually sit outside there. And but you don't know what's happening inside. So finally, the manager comes in. He's like, OK, I let you stay as long. I did all my paperwork like you have to leave like you're the last two here. So then we go outside. There's one last server. The three of us are hanging out. And then there's just like unsavory people on the other side of the like barrier. So there's just three people. I'm not into their vibe. And I turned to the server and I was like, please don't leave. I was like, please let us get into our cars before you leave. And he was like, yeah, for sure. And then we left and then someone pulled a knife out on him. The one of the guys, a six inch blade. Crazy. And he's fine. I haven't talked to him, but I hear he's okay. He got into his car, but we can't leave anyone. I was like I so much like you need to protect us. And then I was like, bye. <laughs> and then he got a fucking knife pulled out on him. So... I'm glad I left, but we should have made sure he got into his car too. Those, yeah, these people seem unhinged. Why but are then you they made a Facebook the post. I did not see it. I'm not on Facebook. Uh, but well, you are, but you're not. <laughs> I got locked out, and the effort to get back in not going to happen. So yeah. I'm out. But um, I guess these people admitted it all on their Facebook page and like said wild stuff. But I don't know. It was um. I just, they just sucked from top to Yeah, but to then you were also telling me that the comedy store says, like, a lot of people bring knives. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, Why is everybody they want, walking around with a knife? I don't know. Shit's fucked up. We're, like, in Waterworld minus the water. Like, we <laughs> are in fucking some dystopian madness. And I don't know. Um... Yeah. I don't know what to say. But yeah, they wand everyone and they um they t they confiscate about six knives a night, they say. But they have to give them back to people at the end of the night. Yeah. By law or something. But I'm glad they're wanding people. So thank you to the security staff that's wanding people. <laughs> yeah. Um, my father famously always has a knife on his belt and has many times tried to go through airport security with it. And they'll say... You, he's actually rescheduled flights because he's already gone through, he's got, like already checked a bag and they're like, well, you need to throw the knife away then. And he's like, no, I won't do that. So he'll reschedule a flight 
to go on like a later flight so that he can Why get his won't bag he back. just pack it in his check? Because oh, he's a dumbass. He forgets. The knife is a part of him. I want a knife though. Look, in a world where people are walking around with AR-15s blowing away 60 people at a time, I I would love everyone to just carry a knife if that makes them feel safe because you can't do that much damage with a knife. You but know? do you know Mandy, the photographer, and her husband, obviously? Yes. So yes. she was telling me like details of like, I think she's into knives or has a knife. And she was saying you want to get one that has like this d- indent so it, like the blood um, like pours out. Jesus. And I was, but right? Isn't that shocking for her to say it? Like, she just doesn't seem like someone that would explain how to like drip knife out of a knife. Yeah. (laughs) But she did. Oh my God. I don't think I'll be carrying a knife anytime soon. Would love to see it for you, Lisa. Um, I don't know. It's I think it's like hip. I think it's the brand new trend is gonna be knife carrying. Like I just sense (laughs) it. Like there's knives at daughter. There's knives at daughter. Like really? You could buy you can buy a knife at Daughter. So to me, it's like, okay, you could buy a hundred and fifty dollar linen dress or a knife. So it's on the you know knives are about to be huge. Okay, knives are about to have a moment. You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how I feel. Oh, I watched the movie Blended last night in the hotel while I was doing my crime research. What is and- that? It's Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore, and I think you can watch it without commercials on Netflix, but I decided to watch it on the E! Channel, and it's really good. It's like a sweet movie. I cried at the end. I liked Aww. it. I Ew. mean, it's like cheesy and weird. I'm not saying it's a perfect movie, but I loved it. It was cute. It was just better than I thought. I thought it was going to be like Jack and Jill. I don't know. Like, I just thought it was going to be like a mess. Is it about like a a man and a woman with their own kids that blend their families? Absolutely. In an African resort. Ah, got it. (laughs) The twist. But Wendy something something from Bridesmaids and the Goldbergs. What's her name? She's so funny and she's Wendy McClendon Covey, one of my favorite, favorite girls. Why can't she? Why isn't she on SVU? She should be on our must be on SVU. She would be great on an SVU. Wendy. Yes. um, You know, our girl in casting who listens. I think Wendy, I think she'd be an amazing rich mom that ends up, you know, being the bad villain. But she can play anything. She can play she rich. Can play she can anything. play trash. Like, she's really good. She could play dumb, smart. You're right. What yeah. I, I think my fantasy is I want her to be bad. Yeah. She could absolutely play bad. Did you see? I watched, she's, I mean, the Reno 911 movie that they did, like, during COVID is the most wild movie. Like, I've never you could tell watched. they couldn't get, you could tell they couldn't get Niecy Nash for all of it. So there's just like a full body double in it for like a bunch of it where it's just the back <laughs> of Niecy Nash's head. Like, it's so <laughs> funny. I love that. Um, but she's really funny in it as always. She's hilarious. No, I follow her on Insta. I love her. I'm obsessed with her from Bridesmaids and Beyond, but Reno 911 and all that. Yeah, I think that's a blind spot for me. I have to watch Reno 911. Yeah, it's really wild and funny. Um, do you... Do I talk about my hotel drama? I don't know. I'm fine to talk about it or we could just... Listen, I got scammed and I sent you... I sent you the thing. Like, I I booked it in front of you in the car on the way to the airport. But I sent you the information. Like, do you feel like I'm a full dumbass or is a trick and a scam? Well, no, but... Okay, so what happened was she booked this... The, she booked this room and then once she was done booking it, when she got to the total the taxes and fees was like 50% of what the whole total cost would be. More than 50%. $100 in fees. 
more than 50% of what the total thing was. And I was like, that is kind of crazy. I'm going to show, look, this is, but this is the site. Like, it's, Yeah, it, it does look like a real it site. It was the first thing. I should have seen the ad. I should have seen it all. I've booked at this place before, but I just am like not, you know, I'm just living. Shout out to Robert, an incredible manager at the hotel I'm staying at. And he figured it out and I got a full refund. Because all these people on... um, Because then I started looking up the reviews and everyone's like, I thought it was booking with the hotel. After I paid, they added all these fees. And they said, I couldn't get a refund. I couldn't get a refund. And then Rob at the hotel, thank you, Rob, shout out. He was like connect me, call them and have them call me. They know who I am. Here's the thing. Like, why are you trying to get your ass shut down? Like add 200 bucks and move on. No one would even notice that they were, that you were fucking them up. Why are you yeah. getting greedy trying to add $800? Like if they, if it had been like a hundred, like if they just add like a, a couple hundred bucks per person, that's how you make money. You're going to get shut down by the Better Business Bureau. I don't know. I'm Again, like I try to tell people how to commit crimes better. I'm also trying to tell people how to scam people better now. Well, also I messaged the hotel chain and I'm going to send them info where it's like, don't partner with these people. They're scam artists. Like why yeah. are you partnering with them? That's like, that's not allowed. That shouldn't, you shouldn't yeah. be partnering with like shady websites if you want to have a legitimate business. But also I'll stay here forever. It's like the top hotel in Skokie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to stay close to the Panera. Are you kidding? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. All right. Well, I'm glad you figured it out and didn't get fully scammed. Um. But- oh, we have one more shout out. We do have a shout out. We were in San Francisco. Allie and Mark brought us pies from, I guess, a very good pie shop. Yeah, we were wasted around 1.30 in the morning, and those pies were delicious. They were helpful and delicious. They were so good, and we ate them with our bare hands. Just scooped them. <laughs> we were in my hotel room with no, uh, and a couple of my friends, and we had no utensils, and we were just, like, taking, we were taking, like, pieces of crust and, like, shoveling Scooping. the pie scoop into <laughs> yeah. our mouths. But we honestly, are some of the some of the best pies I've ever had. And San Francisco was really fun. It was cool. Ugh. Sorry you all got rushed by the staff mid-sentence. <laughs> um, it was really, really fun. Apparently, the reason we couldn't really find like a good bar to go out at after is because like San Francisco's kind of sleepy, people said. They're like, it's like an it's like a people go to bed early and wake up early. It was a ghost town. We walked back to our hotel and not a single soul was out on the street. Um, not on a Thursday one. night. Yeah. Not one. But maybe we were in a different, maybe we were in like a businessy area. Because sometimes yeah, I've stayed knows? in like business districts and towns and it does shut down. I'm like, why is Potbelly's closed it too? Like, I don't get it. Yeah. But it's because <laughs> they just service the people in suits and they business service skirts. the corporate Let's get this going. Let's get this party fucking started. We've got a great episode for you guys. Do not go anywhere. We are doing a classic episode. If you are a fan of John Mulaney's comedy, you know this is the Dean Cain episode. <laughs> um, but officially, it is called Starved, Season 7, Episode 18. And the air date's November 15th. Um, and that is my nephew's birthday. Shout out, Benji. So very excited about that. 2005. 2005. Wait, Lisa, can you tell me the, the Mulaney joke about Dean Cain? I don't think I, I remember it. Oh, it's like if you were going to get it, like you're getting attacked in the show and you're like, wait. Are you Dean Kane? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and then he says the name Dean Kane like 10 times, but um, Oh, okay. 
Yeah, it's just kind of just uh, recognizing that it's Dean Kane who did who did unfortunately become a wild, I think, Republican. Who yeah, like, he's like in the Antonio Sabato Jr. camp of like former like '90s successful people who are now and like Scott Bayo, and now they're all like full right wing people. Um, I just the only one of Mulaney's I ever remember is where he's like, then there's always like a permissive judge who goes, "I'll allow it, but watch yourself, McCoy." That's my favorite <laughs> John Mulaney. Well, one. I love the ice. Um, one. I didn't realize he had so he has four SVU jokes. That means well, the the Jack McCoy one I guess is an original recipe joke. But yeah, and the iced tea yeah. one. You telling me this guy gets off on diddling little girls or something, right? That's yeah. that one. Yeah. Oh, here we are. I mean, are we even allowed to do this? We are not allowed to sing two words of a song, and now we're just quoting jokes. We might get sued. But we're <laughs> saying his name, and I think you know he might be a fan of the pod. We're JK. giving credit. We're giving credit. He's busy raising a child. I think. I don't know. <laughs> And being on tour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hanging out with Chappelle. Yada, yada. So it's the Dean Kane episode. We're here. It's called Starve. Let's start. It opens with some latex gloved hands picking a lock. Dark thematic music plays. A light bulb gets twisted out. It's October 2nd. And they make a point to zoom in on that on like a paper calendar, like a one, one-off rippy calendar that I think is not eco-friendly anymore. I don't know if they still make those. Yeah, though I used to have those like the dark side calendar. <laughs> of course you did. Of course or the you far did. side. What is it? Yeah, yeah. I love those. Like a cartoon a day. I was like, they make me giggle. <laughs> um, there's a criminal in a black ski mask with just the eyes popping out and he's closing in on a woman sleeping. He covers her mouth as she struggles and then he says, obey me or die. Now we're in a new home and the calendar says October 12th and he's cutting a phone cord. He covers the mouth of another woman and says the same thing, obey me or die. And now there's a third victim and she's being pulled out of an apartment on a gurney and Benson and Stabler are on the scene and they're getting, you know, there's they're getting scoop from her. She's in a pink silk robe, very upset. Um, she said that he was strong, tall, then she said she smelled baby powder. And then he said, obey me or die. So Benson's like, fuck, this is the third attack this month. And Stabler says, so far. And it's like, okay, asshole, why don't you stop them then? Yeah. Like, <laughs> we're, we're not, because <laughs> we're going to suck. Like, I, yeah. So it's just not the attitude. You want to manifest that you're going to find the guy. Yeah, like she's right there on a gurney with you. Can you just be a little yeah. more optimistic with this woman? Yeah. So we're back and we're with the last victim and she's now in a gray zippy hoodie at the hospital talking with the detectives. She says she always locks the door and Benson's like, yeah, he picked the lock and he also picked the locks of all the other victims. So he knew that you guys were all going to be alone. So we have to find out what all of you have in common to find out who this is. So they start going down all the things like... What gym do you go to? Do you go to church? Are you volunteering? Applying for a mortgage? Where'd you fill out forms? Did you go to the doctor? And finally, we get it. Speed dating, okay? These are all busy women and they're trying to get it in whenever they can. So we cut to the precincts where Munch is giving a history lesson on speed dating. And I guess it was invented by rabbis so Jews can mate with other Jews. I don't know <laughs> if there's another culture that's so obsessed with like fucking within your religion. Maybe they all are, but it seems like Jews go out of their way. Yeah, like isn't birthright like mostly for that too? It's like, oh, get together, meet other kids that are in your religion, like start relationships. Like yeah. it definitely feels like a thing I associate with Judaism. And also I've met like Catholic people that are like, oh, I'm marrying somebody like this. And I've had Jewish friends who are like, I cannot marry outside of Judaism. 
Yeah, and it's like, you know, the parents are always guilting you with the Holocaust. So you have to like yeah. repopulate or something. I don't know. I mean, I had a friend, I had a friend in New York who was like, I really like this guy. Like, we get along so great, but he's not Jewish. So it's not gonna work out. Like I was like, Whoa. you're just gonna what? Like, I couldn't believe that. Like, but yeah. Well, yeah, I had one psycho friend who became a religious Jew. She was like a casual Russian Jew like me and then became a super Jew. And she basically told me if um, marrying a non-Jew is like saying that Hitler won. And I was like, no, I think you're just the new Hitler, you weirdo. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) The whole point is that we're all just chilling people, trying our best. Like, and it doesn't matter what you are. Not that, like, if you fuck a Catholic, you're on Hitler's side. Whatever. We don't really speak very much. It definitely feels like a master race type of thing that you're trying to do if you're trying to, like, keep everybody to get, you know. I mean, that's one thing about the Jews that I love. They're not trying to convert you. You know what I mean? You never yeah. see Jews knocking on the window. They don't need you. Like, and no, I no, they're do not like trying that. to convert you. They're just trying to get their own together with each other to produce more Jews. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's it. Yeah. Like, oh my God, religion is fucked. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, so we get Munch's little Jew lesson, and then he says it's one of the many contributions his people have made, and then Ice-T ironically says bagels, even though at this point in time, he's never even eaten a bagel, ever. (laughs) Not one. And even more ironically, I was eating a bagel in my London hotel room as I was watching and writing this note. Wow. Can you imagine this bagel little matrix we have going on? (laughs) So Stabler is a fucking idiot. (laughs) (laughs) So he asks how does speed dating work? And then he gets a detailed description for Munch and then Stabler tries to shame him and is like, well, why do you know so much about it? And he's like, not all of us can knock up our high school sweethearts and force them to raise four children alone as you have an emotional affair with your coworker, okay? And slam people (laughs) into cabinets. That's what I was just going to say. What's speed dating? I got married at 18 straight out of Catholic school. Explain it to me. (laughs) What do you mean you're busy? Don't you have a woman just doing (laughs) shit for you at the house? You don't let leave or have a hobby? Um, (laughs) None of them went on dates with uh, the same guy, though. So who could it be? Um, So they're like, maybe it's the head of the company or a worker in the company, or maybe fake names have been used. And we know that the perp likes successful women in their 30s. So they head to the speed dating place called Speed Encounters. And the person who created it is a former therapist who fucked his patients and lost his license. I love this detail. (laughs) I hope that's included in the real crime that you covered today, Kara. I hope there's a therapist that loses his license. I love this. My type, exactly. Um, he's denying raping anybody, uh, but he's the only link between all three women and they all dated different men. And he says, maybe not. Some people don't use their real names for speed dating. So the guy tries to see if maybe all those different names have like one email. They do. It's Romeo at foryoumail.com. I know that Kara loves uh, their fake internet. So I, I, of course, (laughs) I included it. I love in your notes, it's like, it's lit up like it's a real email address. Yeah. <laughs> like it jumps off the page because I'm like, oh, Romeo at foryoumail.com. <laughs> oh, they hyperlinked it. They didn't know that it was an SVU <laughs> fake place. Um, And they tell him to please holla if that email signs up for another dating event. We're back at the chalkboard at the precinct and stablers with the three female victims that we met earlier swapping details about the guy that they went on a date with. Um, And we find out that he paid for everything, opened the door for them, listened to them. But then why no second date, Stabler asks. He's like, damn, you got to marry that guy. He opened a door. So... 
basically he insisted on ordering for them. He's a control freak. And then like tried to force one of them to eat sushi who didn't want to eat sushi. So anytime there's no second date, it seems like he goes out for revenge. So um, spying in on this little meeting is George Huang and Benson. And Huang says he's like a narcissist, classic narcissist. He's trying to repair his wounded ego from not getting a second date. The rundown from Huang is that he's detail-oriented, precise, takes pride in his work, disciplined, organized, meticulous. All those words mean the same thing. Um, yeah. One of those words would have been fine. I don't know why you had to say <laughs> precise, disciplined, organized, meticulous. Um, and especially since he's left nothing behind except the scent of baby powder. Like, he is aroused by total control. Cragen rushes in that Romeo is RSVP'd for another event. So they decide to put Benson in as bait. There's one set of daters um, bonding over both being abducted by aliens. Love that. Um, Benson is talking to a man that collects Pez dispensers. I like that too. Um, I would I would be crushing at the speed dating event. And so it's time to switch dates. And, you know, her sticker says Rachel and in walks Dean Kane. And he says his name is Jim. And he's like, you're the hottest babe in this room. And they giggle, they flirt. She does a busy, successful woman spiel and not wanting to fuck men at work. And then he has kind of a sexy line and goes, my business won't fuck with our pleasure. They giggle, cats in the bag. So now we're back in the office and Stabler is trying to shade Olivia because he hasn't called yet and she's like he's gonna call and he's like oh don't worry you might not be his type and I'm just so annoyed with Stabler here it's like she's everybody's type go fuck yourself yeah (laughs) also do you think that like do you think there just got to be a point where they were like we don't send Olivia to do undercover anymore now we just send Rollins like it's not like she's not still gorgeous like they just don't I mean she's a captain now so obviously you wouldn't really do that but like There just got to be a point in the show where they were like, Rollins is always undercover and Olivia never is anymore as like the sexy babe going on the date. Yeah, and Kat was like undercover as just an annoying person. And then (laughs) Carisi and Stabler have gone undercover as pedophiles. (laughs) They're like undercover pedophiles. (laughs) But yeah, captains can't go undercover. Also, Benson is so famous. Isn't she always in the newspapers and doing press conferences? Yeah, that's true too. That's true. She's a famous police captain. Yeah, she's like me. Well, you know, it's kind of, this is not ripped from the headlines. A captain getting, a police officer getting news for doing something good does not happen. (laughs) So now they go off to a date, okay? He calls, everything's good. They're going on a date, Dean Kane and Benson. And Benson's looking spicy, black dress with a crisscross halter top. And he's doing the like, you're not like other girls speech, which is... Not cool. Because uh, he's like, oh, you're so hot and smart and successful. Like, I don't meet women like that. And it's like, well, we've met three other women that you went on dates with that were all those things. So what are you talking about? <laughs> she says, it's nice to meet a man that appreciates all three. And, um, you know, like, he swipes her hair with... I think that's too much for a first date. Like, swiping hair from a face. Yeah, don't touch my... Much. Yeah, don't touch my hair. Too yeah. much, too much. Um, when the waitress comes over, he asks if Rachel, a.k.a. Benson, wants another drink. She asks for another glass of wine. And he says, no, no, she's going to have a dirty vodka martini with extra olives. And and what a pungent drink. Both Kara and I would not like that. We would be very no. upset with any of... No. We don't want that. I don't want that. 
And she's like, oh, I don't drink vodka. I want wine. And he says, no, trust me, you're going to love it. So this is definitely our guy. Very on the nose with what the women said about him. And Rachel, a.k.a. Benson, is grossed out. Then he reveals he's recently single and he says the craziest stuff about his ex. Like, what woman would be into anything that he is saying right here? He's like, yeah, I knew two months in she wasn't for me, but I kept dating her because she cooked and kept the apartment clean. Like, you're saying that out loud to a woman? He says that she was too clingy, insecure. He wants an equal, a woman who knows what she wants, except won't let her have it. Like, she wanted a glass of wine. You definitely don't like a woman who knows what she wants. Like, you want to break her. Like, so, yeah, he wants a woman that he can dim her light over time. He massages her arm and asks what she's thinking. And she's like, I think it's late and I've had a long day. I have a long day tomorrow. So, like, peace the fuck out. Good night and leaves. He throws cash on the table and runs out after her. And now we see Finn, who's been there all along at the bar, also wearing a disguise of glasses. But, like, you don't need a disguise. No one knows who you are or what you're doing. (laughs) But also, glasses make your eyes bigger and would not hide you at all. So what is happening here? Why is he wearing glasses? I don't know. I don't know. Also, like, I I know that this is like a trope in television shows to wear such a fancy outfit, like what Benson is wearing. But like, have you ever worn anything remotely this fancy on a, on a first date? No, but maybe rich people that go to such... Fa- or is, no, I haven't. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, like, I mean, I would maybe wear like a skirt. I don't know. Like, I can't remember. I've been on blind first dates, like from internet dating or whatever. But like, I feel like it's... I was very keeping it cash. Don't try too hard. But like, they're, they're, people are always in like a slinky bodycon dress, like heading out for a first date. I know. It's very sex in the city when Charlotte's like, Saturday's date night. I would never go yeah. out on date. You know, like, so maybe people, <laughs> maybe the Cosmo, when Cosmo was king in the 90s, people dressed up. Yeah. Like, I wonder if dating's changed. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like everybody with with apps, it's like everyone's trying to like be a little bit more casual. So it's like, before you go out to like a fancy dinner, you'd maybe just meet for coffee or meet for a drink first. And then maybe like your second or third date would be like, I'm taking you to like, you know, hot restaurant. Um, I was talking to a friend out here who went on a first date and he showed up with six bunches of flowers. Yeah. And she didn't love that. But then he had tickets to a concert she wanted to go to. So she did go to the concert with him. And then he got... <laughs> so blackout drunk and then she never saw him again because he was just so wasted at this concert. Oh, no. But yeah, like, yeah, we're... we're he sounds cash. like he was really nervous. Yeah. Then maybe one bunch of flowers. But um, I think yeah, just don't ever people, go with six bunches of flowers. We're just more casual. Like, even we, we've talked before about, like, um, high school kids, like, proms. Like, people are wearing short dresses. They're not doing ball gowns like they used to. Mm, it's sneakers. Yeah. I think just as a society, we've kind of you know, chilled out a little bit. Well, yeah. And I mean, especially in LA, like I remember going into some places in New York where I'd be like, oh, I'm not dressed nice enough for this place. And in LA, that like doesn't exist. You can go to the nicest fucking restaurant and there's some like tech dude in like a hoodie and cargo shorts. And like, it just doesn't. I've probably said this before on the podcast, but like, I think there's no way to underdress here. (laughs) Like, No, yeah. Yoga moms. Yoga moms are the leaders of LA. Leisure, baby. So whatever. So we're back to Ice-T in giant glasses and he chases after them. Now, Benson is walking towards her place and he's waiting for her in some back door on the floor. Like this weird door that looks like it's part of like 
a restaurant with a little square thing. Like, I don't think Benson would live in a building with this kind of door, but he's he's in this some door. Watch the fucking episode. I can't describe this door any better for you. It's like a back <laughs> staircase. Oh, I described it. It's like a back staircase door, like emergency exit stairs. And it has like a little window. Yeah. yeah. So he's standing outside the apartment watching her and then Stabler and Finn are there to arrest him for three counts of rape. I think they should have waited for him to enter the apartment. But it's TV and I get it, whatever. So now we're in interrogation. He's standing in front of the wired window. I didn't rape anyone. I'm a surgeon. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I save lives every day. And Stabler is like, yeah, to make up for your bad performance in the bedroom, heard you got rejected a lot. And he says, you must have me mistaken for somebody else. And Stabler is like, yes, and starts rattling off all the fake names he's been using. And in walks Benson saying, and Jim. And he goes, Rachel? And she goes, nah, my name's Detective Benson. Uh, Mike Jurgens is this guy's real name, though it is not Jim. And she asks, why didn't you say you were a doctor? And he goes, women hear doctor and they see dollar signs. And he was just protecting himself. But he said he worked on Wall Street and work, like was in finance, which is literal money. Yeah. Literal <laughs> dollar signs. When I hear doctor, I don't even think rich. I think you have a busy schedule and I like to lounge a little more than that. And I don't think we're yeah. compatible. <laughs> I can't deal with yeah, it. We're like- at 5 a.m. going to surgery. We're not going to get along. Yeah, if you're really trying to like weed out gold diggers, you should be like, I work for a nonprofit. I'm a kindergarten teacher. I don't know, something, you know? So he's a pretty bad liar for being a like conniving rapist. She quickly, so she quickly, uh, that's a cute kid name. I bet Quixley's gonna, <laughs> Quixley. Quixley's gonna be kids' names for them. Cute little Quixley. <laughs> She quickly asks, uh, then why did you follow me home? And he says, I just I just wanted to apologize. And Sailor says, no, you just wanted to see where she lived. And he's doing a big, like, you got the wrong guy. And Sailor goes, no, you act like a control freak. She turns you down. You stalk. Then you sneak back to rape. You're compulsive in the same script every time. He calls Sailor crazy. And he's like, I'm crazy, honey. Um, <laughs> But then in walks a defense attorney going, not another word. And it's Minerva Graham Bishop. That's not a real name. Um, It's a white-haired lady that resembles Mrs. Potts from Beauty and the Beast to me, like in her spirit. Like she gives me teapot spirit. And then behind her runs in a brunette woman who comes to hug Dean Kane, and it's his girlfriend. Oh, and can I just say that Mrs. Potts that you're talking about, it, Minerva Graham Bishop is played by Terry Garr, who was, uh, is an amazing actress who I am like obsessed with from all these movies in like the 80s and 90s. Like, what movies? Would I know any of them? Well, she was in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is like old, like, and Tootsie and Young Frankenstein. Like, these are all like in the 70s. Let's see. She hasn't done anything since 2011. So yeah, she's not acting anymore. Yeah, SVU was one of like the last 10 things she did before she stopped. So yeah, so in walks Minerva, a.k.a. Terry Gar, you know, Kara's number one 80s crush. <laughs> I am her number one fan. And then behind her is, like I said, brunette woman, hugs Dean Kane. It's his girlfriend, Cora Kennison. And yeah, they've been living together for a year. Everyone looks puzzled. And then she then, with the nudging of the lawyer and her guy, says that they were home together all night in bed on Tuesday. So it can't be him. Nobody believes this. Okay, I'm like, it's clearly right. a staging. And she's like a little mousy mouse, right? She's yeah. just like, oh, yeah, this is my hunky boyfriend and he's a surgeon and like, yeah. 
Yeah, she has like bags under her eyes. It's not healthy. So <laughs> now the defense is having their own time in the fish tank while Novik and Benson are sta- and Stabler are chatting on the other side of the glass. So Benson says how he badmouthed her the whole date and he doesn't care about her at all. And Novak's doing her job by saying, okay, that's not going to hold up in court. What are you talking about? There's no evidence. And uh, like bring in the women to ID him. And they're like, and she's like, yes, but they can only ID him as going on a date with him. They can't ID him as their attacker. Like that doesn't work. Um, Novak agrees with me that they should have waited for him to attack Olivia before arresting him because everything else is circumstantial. And uh, But Olivia is pissed. Like we couldn't have waited because sometimes it's weeks before the attack. And what if he attacked someone else in the middle or something? So whatever. She has to break his alibi. That's like what the the goal is. So Benson's like, I'll take a run at Cora. That little mousy mouse, I'll fuck her. Like, I'll fuck her up. (laughs) I'll break (laughs) that Wait, can I just ask though, like if anybody, is it really not enough of a link that three women went on a date with this same guy and they all ended up getting raped in the exact same way? Like, how is that a coincidence? It's not, but it's it's circumstantial. I just can't believe that. You know, I feel like a jury would convict. Yes, but it, you have to be proven guilty with no bet. What is it? Benefit of the doubt? Like, what's the wording? Yeah. There's like a phrase. Reasonable doubt. Reasonable doubt. Yeah. So I guess there's reasonable doubt that somebody followed all these women on this date with this man, and then later went and raped them, like spotted them on the date with this man, and all and said to each one of them, "Obey me or die." Like, I don't know. I just feel like a jury would convict just based off of the coincidental, but I guess it is, okay, circumstantial. Anyway, go on. I agree with you. I'm not on the side of the law, okay? I need right. to go, I agree with Kara, but I also understand <laughs> what, you know, it is what it is. Right. So yeah, Benson's like, oh, I'll take a run at Cora. Don't worry. I did date her boyfriend. And it's like, okay, bitch. <laughs> Caddy Benson. So she arrives at their place and Cora's like, no, Mike said you would try to trick me and I don't want to talk to you. And she's like, fair, fair, fair. Cops are trash. Like, I know that. But did he tell you he went on a date with me? And she says, you're lying. Benson then shows her photos of the date. And maybe this is what I was thinking. Finn took them with the hidden camera in his glasses. Uh, you think Finn had early Google Glass? <laughs> yeah, taking photos Finn had of the early date. Google Glass in 2005. Yeah. <laughs> the pilot program for Google Glass was Finn Tutuola. Um, so maybe he was taking photos with his big nerd glasses. <laughs> um, she's like, there must be some other explanation. And it's like, honey, come on. Denial is real. Benson is like, let's just go have coffee. And this works. You know, she is desperate and alone. So they are now having coffee and Cora's eating a muffin. Well, there's muffins on the plate. They're, they look blueberry. They look good. She's not eating the muffins, <laughs> but there's a few on the plate. They met because her last boyfriend beat her up and she went to the ER and he was her doctor. She's like, yeah, oh. wow, a guy like that. I couldn't believe he was interested in me. And Benson then, with her years of experience, asks a question out of left field that like I would not have thought to ask at all. And she asks if he's ever forced her to do something in the bedroom that she didn't want to do. Cora gets shy, but then she's like, there's nothing I wouldn't do for Mike. We love each other. So we know she does anal. That's what they're getting. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, okay, then why does he date other women? And she says, I'm not as smart as Mike. I didn't go to college. And sometimes he needs other people to talk to, but he always comes home and that's what matters. That's sad. So sad. Benson then plays the recording of Mike talking shit about her from the date, and she starts to tear up. Tears stream down her face. An incredible actress. Benson pushes her. Wait, what? No, not physically. Like, pushes her for questioning. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) This girl's crying, and Benson pushes her. (laughs) Shoves her. (laughs) 
So Benson, Benson <laughs> metaphorically pushes her like, hey, did you ask, did he ask you to lie for him? She slowly nods yes, then says, yeah. Um, was he home Tuesday night? And Cora says, I'm going to be sick. And she runs off. And now we're at the precinct. Benson is asking Cora more questions. We learn he left with his gym bag. And we need Cora to give permission to search the apartment. And she's having a really hard time with this and keeps saying he's a good man and that she doesn't believe that he would be out there raping. Benson then bullies Cora into giving the detectives consent to search the apartment. And you know Casey's going to yell at them for this, for sure. This is not above board. And Finn and Stabler are there and they're going through the bag and it's all the things. It's lock pickers, latex gloves, tools, magnifying glass, baby powder, like truly everything. Finn is confused though because he's rich and smart and has a woman waiting for him at home and Stabler's like, yeah, you've been on the squad for five years. Like, what What don't you understand? Like, yeah. It's not... Like, rape's not about, like, having fun sex. Like, that's, yeah. like, not about... Like, that's not what it's about. Finn is just so simple where he's like, yeah, you have a woman in video games and a job. What's the problem? Why do you gotta... What, what more do you want in life? Um... So Mike walks in and he's in scrubs and mad and rolling his eyes like a teen. Like, what the fuck? And Benson and Cora are walking towards the elevators and they bring him in and they hug. And he's like, it's not your fault. We'll be together soon. And she screams, I don't understand when they tell her like they found all of the tools. And now it's an obvious commercial break and we will return to Judge Elizabeth Donnelly's chambers. Basically... Minerva says that Cora had no right to consent to a search because it's not her apartment. And Casey says, nah, roommates or living girlfriends are allowed to give consent to searches. Then Minerva with a curveball goes, um, yeah, sure, but she doesn't actually live there. She has a lease on another apartment which she gets her mail. Boom. Casey's lips look so plump and good. Anyways, judge <laughs> asks if the detectives knew she had another place and was just an overnight guest. And Casey says, absolutely not. And also the defense is claiming that that's just his medical bag. It has nothing to do with crimes. And it's like, sure, Jan. Yeah. You have to pick so many locks when you're on your way to surgery. Yeah. But there's no ski mask. And so we need to find the ski mask that would really help the case. Um, so, but... The judge, judge, the search is out. The bag is out. Everything is out. I disagree with this, but I guess the law is the law. So now we have 72 hours to get an indictment or Dr. Jurgens walks. And that's the brand of a lotion. And I don't know why they did that. Yeah. Benson and Sabler are like, what now, Casey? You fucking bitch. Why'd you ruin our case? And Casey says, we start over and need fresh evidence, new warrants for work locker, house, and car. But it's like the mask is long gone. He's not a full dummy. And she's like, sure, but maybe proof he bought one. Like, come on, let's work. And they also have to convince Cora to testify. And Benson does not think that's going to be possible at all. But she's Casey's first witness for the grand jury tomorrow morning. So Benson runs and starts banging on a door asking Cora for, like, who doesn't answer. So Benson just enters the home. Cora, Cora. And then she sees a messy, like, oven kitchen top. And on the bed behind a curtain is a passed out Cora with an empty bottle of vodka. She calls a bus to 390 West 23rd Street. And she's like, wake up, wake up. And she isn't waking. So now we're at the hospital and it's surfer doctor. And he's there and he, he lets <laughs> us know. Cora's blood alcohol was 0.35. Wow. That's wild. He says, lucky to be alive. Um, so Surfer Doc says she'll be all right for now, but her liver is fucked and she's an alcoholic with a binge drinking problem. She has alcohol poisoning and also she's bulimic and needs to go to rehab with long-term treatment. This is a big um, 
big medical appointment, I would say. Um, a changing point in what's about to happen. So Benson goes to have a heart-to-heart with Cora about her drinking and binging and that she needs help or that she's going to die. And she says that Mike knew about her problems and was trying to help her, and now she has nobody. And Benson's like, no, I will get you into a program. I'm Olivia Benson. Don't worry. And she says, yes, I will go to a program. And then a woman enters and says, Cora... And Cora does not seem happy to see her, must be a mother. And it's her mother. She wants to take her home and her mom is like, excuse me, who are you? And she's like, I'm a cop and I'm here to take her to treatment. And the mom is like, the fuck? What did Mike do to you? If the cops are here, obviously this has to do with Mike. And Benson lays it out for Mama Cora and is like, he raped three women and we need Cora to testify tomorrow. And she says, that man is poison. She then starts yelling at Cora as she's in the hospital bed like, okay, lady. But basically, not the move. Not the move. Not the move. But basically, it's like, fuck Mike. That's why you're drinking and he sucks. And everyone kind of wants a bit of Cora. They all are helping her, but it's also selfish in their own needs. And so, like, Cora's just like a sad girl that has bulimia and is like drinking herself to death and just wants to be loved and have a mom who's not yelling at her as she's in the hospital. So, this fully sucks. So mom, Mike, Benson, grand jury, and she just wants to cry in peace. Let her cry alone. Um, It's the next morning as Benson says good morning to Stabler walking into work. Stabler fills her in that the grand jury indicted him on all three rapes. She wasn't uh, performing excitement good enough for him. So he's like, well, you don't seem happy. Why aren't you happier I didn't. I did not get this interaction. Like you guys have cases all the time. Like why does she have to tap dance for you right now? Yeah. Um, and she says, I'm worried about Cora. She's really fragile. And Stabler's like, you got her into rehab. That's good. And she says, nope, Virginia, the mother won't let her go. Okay, Cora's over 18. Why does the mother all of a sudden have, like, jurisdiction over Cora's life? Yeah. Virginia claims she can take care of her daughter just fine. And Stabler says love never cured an alcoholic. And in behind Stabler's head runs in the mother. She's gone. She's gone. So they were at Penn Station waiting for the trains, and then she disappeared. Um, So the mom is, like, crying and blaming herself. Where could she be? It's obviously to go see Mike. So they rush over to Rikers, and oh, no. They're married. Oh, no. Jailhouse wedding. Ugh, they got married. She can't testify against him now. Um, They inform the newly married couple that since the rapes, though, happened before the marriage, she still has to testify. But then he claims that's not why he married her. I don't know. But he's dragged away saying he loves her. She says she's not going to rehab anymore and Mike will help her. And Benson is livid. He's never helped you before. He lets you drink to control you and married you to shut you up. He's using you. And then Cora says, you're using me, pretending to be my friend so I can frame him. And she screams, shut up. Benson tries to reason with Cora and says, you know deep in your heart that he is guilty. And she responds, I don't want him to be. Benson is back on her testifying pressure and bullshit. And she's like, I'm not sending my husband to prison, lady. So we're now back to the trial, part 29. Dean Kane is looking at Cora on the stand. She admits to lying to the cops because Mike told her to. Minerva's like, you married him after he was accused of assault. Like, do you believe he's a rapist? And she says, I don't know. He wasn't violent with her and he saved her from an abusive relationship and he never raped her. So, and she's only there because they made, you know, her testify and that she doesn't have have a choice. She yells, why are you doing this to the man you love? 
Judge Donnelly offers her a break and she says, yes, please. So the judge has been, and the ju- did you notice Judith Light's hair in this? It's like 80s backup <laughs> singer, like high up gel. It was a fucking do. It was a wild. Um, it's like David Bowie inspired. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 80s. So she walks up to Dean Cain and says, I'm sorry. And he says, it's okay, sweetheart. I love you. Casey Novak looks at Dean Cain with disgust. Oh, mm. no, we're in Benson's bed at night, so I'm really nervous. And now she gets a call. I'm even more nervous. It's Cora. Mike calls her. And all we hear is like, Benson, we don't know what Cora's saying. So all we hear is, Cora, Cora, how much have you had to drink? I'm on my way. She has a lot of gold necklaces on. I love it. I want them all. She calls Elliot for a bus and to call Rikers and put Mike on suicide watch. So they all arrive on the scene and the cops are giving her CPR and it's like, what the fuck just happened? And they're losing her and there's a tube in her throat. And Benson's like, I just talked to her. What the fuck? And they're like, leave us alone. We have to keep her alive. So like, can you stop talking to us? We're trying to save this woman. (laughs) We're at the hospital and she has a breathing tube down her throat and she's slowly like blinking. And then now we have the brunette fun doctor who I love, Dr. Ann Morello, who plays, um, who's played by Julie White. And she has 69 IMDb credits. (laughs) Ayo. And um, do you watch Big Mouth? Yeah. She's Andrew Rannell's mother in Big Mouth. She's like the gay boy's mom in Big Mouth. Oh, who, like, turns okay. on him. So that's exciting. And she's only been in five episodes of SVU, but I feel like, what an impact. Like, to me, I was like, yeah, oh, one of my I, we, favorites. We've covered, yeah, we've covered other episodes she's done, and I was surprised to hear, like, I thought she was in many, many, many episodes. Yeah, I just like her, but she says that her heart is pumping, but her brain is done, and it was, like, deprived of oxygen for far too long, and she will never recover. Sad. So it's irreversible brain damage. And then her mother yells, but her eyes are moving. She is blinking. And the doctor explains that's just a brain stem reflex and she doesn't see us or anything. Um, But like, she didn't even have that much to drink. But because of the bulimia, it just made it worse. And um, it's sad, but they have to tell the mom that she's just not going to get better and it's done. And the mom is wet eyes sad. So... Like, right now, she, like, Cora's on supportive care. We got to keep her comfortable. And Benson says, I'm sorry. And then Virginia says, it's your fault because she drank because you were making her testify. And Benson explains, no, it's Mike's fault. He called her from Rikers and told her that he was going to kill himself. And Virginia's like, but he's not dead, is he? So she screams about taking Cora home. And the doctor says, I don't think that's a good idea. And in all her chunky highlight glory, she's like, fuck you. I don't care about any of you. She's coming home with me. And by the way, the mom is played by Veronica Cartwright, who has been working since 1958. Like, still working, still doing jobs. She has 154 credits and, like, still passionate and making shit. Like, it's incredible. What a career. Um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Birds. That's iconic. The Birds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's an icon. So we're now with the—this This was obviously maybe a— Neil Bear moment. Well, I don't know. <laughs> but so we're now at the at the giant gray stone columns on the outside of the courthouse that makes everyone seem so small and tiny. Um, and it's Benson filling Casey in on the events that took place. Then a man in a trench coat runs after her saying that Judge John Lee wants to see her in her chambers now. 
Oh, fuck. This motherfucker, Dean Kane, through Minerva, is saying that he wants to get her feeding tube removed. And Casey is stunned. But he has every right as her husband. So the lawyers do some verbal punching. And then Donnelly is like, I'll hear from you why you want to do this. And he says I, that he spoke to Cora's neurosurgeon and she has no chance of recovery. And he can't let her suffer. And Casey says, don't let him do this. Donnelly says, I have no choice as her husband. He is next of kin, and that's that. She says, I know it'll be hard for the mother to understand, but it is what it is. And back at the precinct, Stabler is telling Casey, wow, the rapist has more rights than the mother. Sucks, but it's true today. It's true all the time, constantly. Rapists have more rights than full women that are pregnant. So I don't know. A rapist can sue their rape victims for custody of unwanted fetuses. <laughs> like, yeah. it is fucking twisted, the world we're living in. Obviously, an aside has nothing to do with this episode, but rapists, why don't... Get, no rights, please. Stabler yeah. says it's all about control. Then Benson peeps up. He's the wrong person, but making the right decision. And Casey judges her. Uh, Benson says she deserves to die with dignity. Stabler says, yeah, but the mom wants her alive. And there's just like a lot of twists and turns. And Munch says, none of this matters. It's not up to us to decide who lives and dies. Like, sure, disconnect her. And then what? Who's next? Paraplegics and the mentally challenged. And it's like, okay, okay, no one, stop doing slippery slope stuff, okay? And now he's bringing up the Nazis. And Casey says, I got to follow the law, which is not a great response after the Nazis are brought up. You know what I mean? Like, don't talk about following orders. Right. <laughs> Um, Stabler's like, let's just go to her mother and see if she has any evidence or understanding of what Cora would have wanted. Casey goes to talk to Virginia, who's sitting next to Cora, saying how her daughter isn't a quitter. And even though they've never spoken about it, she knows her daughter. How do I stop Mike? And she says, file an appeal. But even Virginia knows that the law, like the judges aren't going to be on her side. So Casey, sneaky, sneaky, says there are other ways to get people to listen. So it cuts to her boss throwing a newspaper on her desk saying, what the hell were you thinking? Which is a good impression, I think. What is his name? Fred Thompson? Frank Thompson? Oh, yeah. Fred Thompson. Yeah. yeah. So the newspaper, <laughs> it's a picture of... Wait, what? Go, go. Just say it. Say it. It's a picture of Cora, and the headline says, Mom to rapist, don't kill my baby. Is that But why? in your notes, it says, don't kill me, baby. And oh. so I was just laughing. It's like, don't kill me, baby. So it's making me laugh. <laughs> uh, he's like, you told her to do that. Why would you involve yourself in this mess? And she says, you taught me to speak for the victims. So it's actually your fault. Bye. And he says, no, <laughs> crime victims. There is no crime. But Casey doesn't believe that. And Mike is a con man and a lunatic. And now they go and they turn on New York One, which is exciting. Shout out to our friend, Allison Leiby. And there is a <laughs> protest with lots of signs. And she's like, this rapist is trying to kill my daughter. Please help. And they're at the hospital doing a walk and talk. And Casey's trying to save her ass. And Virginia's excited because like a bunch of lawyers have reached out and are willing to help her. Um, but oh, no, they go into the room. And Mike is in there with Minerva and the judge authorized this visit. This is oh hell. He says, I love Cora and she would not want to live like this. I've lived with her and you haven't called her once. And she says it's him who pulled them apart and she starts to cry. Casey looks at Minerva like, why didn't you tell me he would be here? And she says, he doesn't need your permission to visit his wife. And she's right, but what a bitch. Like Minerva's a bitch. Yeah. I guess I would hire her Stone if I needed cold. a bitch. Stone cold, yeah. The doctor comes in with a judge and, like, paperwork saying that she is granting an emergency hearing for the mother's sake. So let's see if we can work this shit out. 
Dean Kane is on the stand and he said that they had a conversation about her wants and like what her decision would be. And they panned a Virginian court listening to him speak and she has disdain on her face, a golden cross on her chest and a lawyer with a bow tie and a pocket square. He says that one night last summer, they were driving back from the beach and there was a terrible accident in front of them and a drunk driver like ran a stop sign and hit a couple in a convertible and he told Cora to call 911 and he ran over to help and the man was dead and the girlfriend had severe head trauma and he was covered in her blood and helping clear the airways. And Cora cried and asked if the girl's going to make it and if she would be a vegetable. And Cora responded, Mike, promise me you will never let me live like that. Virginia stands up and calls him a liar. She would never have said that. And then she gets to do a dream and scream, you bastard! So, love that. Love it. The judge wants her to behave, but she doesn't, and she's crying and so upset and distraught and confused how this is happening. And now it's time for the ruling. Donnelly says, pull the plug. Remove the tube. Virginia cries. Mike has no emotion. They're at the hospital, and then Benson lowers herself and says thank you to Mike for letting her mother hold Cora's hand as she died peacefully. And he says, you're welcome. Then he says, now there's something you can do for me. Expedite the death certificate. Life insurance company is going to need that before they can process her claim. And Benson goes, oh, I fucking knew it. How much is the claim for? And he goes, it's for $1.5 He added her to the policy right after they got married. And it hits Benson like, oh, my God, you were never going to kill yourself. But you knew that she would never want to live without you. And he says, that's a terrible thing to say to a grieving husband with a shitty, shitty grin. And he's smiling and it's Minerva, you fucking dumb bitch. Are you proud of yourself? And now it's funeral time and the thunder is growling. And Melinda is with the mother of Virginia and lets her know that the autopsy showed that the brain damage was irreversible and there was no hope. And then more information comes in. Benson found a newspaper article about the car accident and Cora is quoted that she would never want to live like that. So hopefully it gives her a little bit more peace of what happened, but it is very sad. She cries and walks off to the front seat of the hearst and, you know, sounds of rain and that's Dick Wolf, baby. Ugh. And why don't we ever find out if he gets if he gets convicted for rape? I want to know. I want him to, like, never be able to spend this $1.5 million policy. But if he gets the policy, can it just be in his commissary? I don't know. I don't really know how that works. Because I'm sure he's trying to avoid not getting raped in jail because he is Dean Cain. Yeah. Well, this is uh, partially based on a case that we're going to get to as soon as we get back from these brief messages. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Kara, I'm really excited about this because this is like a cultural touchstone. I remember the news. I remember the 2020s and the date or whatever. Like, this was such a thing, but I don't remember any details or anything about it. So I feel like very excited to be informed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's okay. That's what I was literally going to start out saying. And like, you were like a teen when this was going down. Like, I was in my 
late teens, early 20s. And like, I even was kind of like, wait, what's going on? Like, I didn't really, it was just such a huge case. Um, and the, I feel the like there was Shivo a lot case. of jokes. There was like, it was yes. a big like late night joke-a-thon. Right. This episode is partially based on the Terry Schiavo case, which came into the public eye in the early 2000s. And it was um, constantly in the news. It was like a late night punchline. It was like a very big water cooler topic because it touched on religious shit. It touched on political shit. And it was like a landmark case in the whole right to die debate, which if you like ever heard of Dr. Kevorkian, that was like a huge thing of, are people allowed to choose when they want to die? Or when do we, how do we decide who lives and dies based on the quality of their life, if they're a vegetable and et cetera, et cetera. So what happened in this case was Terry Schiavo was a 26-year-old woman who um, actually grew up struggling with her weight. And she was very overweight at one point and she eventually lost 100 pounds. And then it sounded like she struggled with keeping the weight off like for like most of her adult life. And that was like a dieting was a part of her life. So in February of 1990, Terry collapsed in a hallway of her St. Petersburg, Florida apartment. Her husband called 911 and, and the, when the first responders got there, she was unconscious, not breathing with no pulse. They attempted to resuscitate her. She was transported to the hospital. Paramedics had intubated her and ventilated her. So she's breathing with help at this point. And the cause of the collapse was determined as uh, cardiac arrest. And in her chart, it was noted that she was trying to keep her weight down by drinking mostly liquids in the daytime and that she was drinking about 10 to 15 glasses of iced tea a day. I don't know if that's accurate. That's what I read. And then she also had low potassium, which is hypokalemia. And apparently, electrolyte imbalance is often caused by drinking excessive fluids, and a serious consequence of hypokalemia can be heart rhythm abnormalities, including sudden arrhythmia death syndrome. And there had been, I can get, I'm going to get into it later, but there was also talk that she was suffering from an eating disorder, bulimia, which ties into the episode as well. But ultimately, there was no definitive cause linked to the cardiac arrest. So they do not know what caused it. Um, and approximately one year after this initial health event, the doctors diagnosed her as being in a persistent vegetative state, which is abbreviated a lot as PVS, and that it was irreversible. So she could breathe on her own and she could open her eyes and move her eyes but she was not capable of thought or emotion and she was not seeing anything. Like even if she moved her eyes, she was not seeing anything. So meanwhile, um, in that year, like her husband, Michael, like really attended to her and he began studying nursing actually at St. Petersburg Community College so that he could like care for her better. Like, and he eventually became a respiratory therapist and an ER nurse. So in 92, this is just interesting because this brings into the, the bulimia of it a little bit. Michael filed a malpractice suit against Terry's gynecologist on the basis that he had failed to diagnose bulimia as a possible cause of her infertility. Like she had gone to a doctor because she had stopped having her period and the doctor had failed to take her entire medical history into account and that might have revealed her eating disorder. But like how, I mean, I'm sure people with these disorders are like really good at hiding it, but what kind of husband are you? You don't notice that your wife's not eating at all and drinking 15 glasses of iced tea a day? What'd you think was going on? I know. But also he, it's like, there's all this back and forth in a lot of the stuff I was reading where some people were like, none of her friends knew she had an eating disorder. And then one case said, oh no, one of her friends did know and testified that she did know. But in this 
um, case, this malpractice suit, he did win millions of dollars. Like originally, I think he was awarded six or seven million, but then they brought the judgment down to two million. And so after all his attorney's fees and everything, he got 300,000 and and then 750,000 was put into a trust for Terry's medical care. So that's just like a little background on that side lawsuit. Um, but so here's what happened. 1990, she has this cardiac event. 91, she's declared in a persistent vegetative state. Not until 1998, Michael Shivo, her husband and legal guardian, petitions to have her feeding tube removed. Her parents, Bob and Mary Schindler, are very opposed to this. And then it becomes this whole thing where Michael stood to inherit Terry's assets. Nothing's clear about whether she had a lot of assets, um, but if he would just divorce her, which her parents wanted him to do, they would be the beneficiaries. So it almost feels like people were like, well, who is everybody doing this for the right reasons? Or like, why are people doing this? She had no living will. Well, she um, also, I'm sorry, but he won all this money and dedicated the majority of it to her medical care. If he wanted just money, he would have kept all the money. Yeah, and maybe bounced after that lawsuit too. Yeah, yeah like totally. Totally. Like, and I don't he, see, I think he's an idiot for not maybe realizing his wife was never eating or puking constantly, but like, it doesn't, I don't know any of this, but it does, if he gave all that money to her care, I can't imagine him yeah. trying to use her death to get money. Well, and the other thing is, is like, yeah, it, it doesn't really seem like she had, uh, you know, $1.5 million, like in the episode or something. Like it didn't really, they were living in St. Petersburg, Florida. I don't think they were super, super wealthy people. So I don't really know what he stood to inherit. And he basically claimed... I know my wife would not have wanted to live like this and I'm staying married to her to carry out her wishes. Like, that's why I'm doing this. Because for him, I, well, we'll get into it later. So around the same time as he's filing for this feeding tube to be removed, the Schindlers become aware of a bone scan report that was performed in 1991. And they, along with this guy, Dr. William Hamsfar, who throughout this kind of seems like a little bit like a quack. They claim that the trauma shown in the bone scan was a result of Terry being abused by Michael. And mm, the plot they gave, Well, yeah. So they give the scan information to forensic pathologist and superhero to Lisa and Kara, Dr. Michael Bodden. And he suggests, oh yes, a head, a head injury caused the trauma. But then Dr. Michael Bodden, they give him Terry's full history, and he's like, oh, never mind. I agree that the trauma is consistent with a cardiac arrest, a fall, and then CPR attempts and resuscitation. Like, never mind. So I just wanted to mention this because Dr. Michael Bodden is tangentially very involved. So essentially, this is what starts up in the press that Michael Michael Shivo didn't call 911 right away. He was abusing her. Like, this is about him controlling her. There's truly like not a lot of evidence evidence to support that. I know that's very SVUification of it, like, but this man called nine one one the minute he found her. Like, it was not besides what you said that maybe he didn't notice that she was struggling with some eating issues. Like, it doesn't really. I don't think he did anything to harm her and cause this cardiac event. So, in two thousand, after two years of after he's said he wants to remove the feeding tube, there's a trial that takes place to determine Terry's end of life wishes. Michael argues that she would not want to be kept alive with a machine with almost zero chance of recovery. And her parents, on the other hand, claim that she was a devout Catholic who would never go against the church's policy on euthanasia. And that's just like the story of Catholicism is like every parent thinks their kid is like a perfect Catholic and they're not. Um, and so the judge ruled that Terry was in a persistent vegetative state and that she had made reliable oral declarations 
that she would not want to live like that and that she would want the feeding tube removed. So in 2000, the Schindlers tried to challenge Michael's guardianship. And so at this point, she's been in a persistent vegetative state for a decade, okay? Michael has a new partner at this point and has fathered a child with her, but he will not divorce Terry because he wants to make sure that her final wishes are carried out. To me... I don't see what he's gaining, especially after like he gets this small $300,000 settlement in 92, you know? And that has to do with the infertility issue, uh, which you could argue that that affected him as well because they were unable to procreate together and that doctor misdiagnosed or whatever. So the Schindlers uh, lost their challenge to the guardianship and Michael retained the guardianship and the feeding tube was set to be removed in April of 2001. So then it was removed on 424. And then the Schindlers filed a suit against Michael and a, a judge issued an injunction against removal of the show until it was all settled. The tube was put back in on April 26th. So she was two days without the tube and then it was put back in. Then in August of 2001, later that year, Judge Greer, who we're going to hear about a lot, he is like the main judge in this and he's like a, um, a circuit court judge in Florida. Judge Greer heard a motion in August of 2001 that uh, the Schindlers were claiming that new medical treatment could restore sufficient cognitive ability so that Terry might be able to actually participate in her continued life-prolonging measures and decide about what she wanted to do herself. And the court also motions um, heard motions from the Schindlers to remove Michael as the guardian and a motion for Judge Greer to recuse himself. Very SVU. Like, they made these motions right to the judge. Very Judge Oliver Taft. Um, he denied all the motions and they appealed. This is like the whole cycle of this is just motion, appeal, motion, appeal. Um, the Court of Appeals remanded the question of Terry's wishes back to the trial court and required an evidentiary hearing be held about this um, new, you know, technology that could help her live better or this new, um, you know, medical treatment. So the court uh, specified that five board-certified neurologists were to testify, and the Schindlers were allowed to choose two of those doctors to present their findings at the evidentiary hearing, and then Michael Schiavo could introduce two rebuttal experts. And then finally, the court itself would appoint a new independent physician to examine and evaluate all of Terry's conditions. So now we're at 2002. The evidentiary hearing has happened, and to determine whether these new therapy treatments would work, a new CAT scan was done and showed severe cerebral atrophy. An EEG showed no measurable brain activity. And then these five physicians, there was William Maxfield, a radiologist, and then four neurologists. One is William Hamsfar, who obviously the parents chose. Ronald Cranford, Melvin Greer, no relation, and Peter Bambakidis. Um, Cranford, Greer, and Bambakidis all testified that she was in a persistent veg vegetative state, while Maxfield and Hamsfar said she was in a minimally conscious state. So... I don't know. I mean, there there seems like it's semantics at this point. In this trial, a six-hour medical exam of Terry was taped, and the judge was like, this is very clear that she's not responding. Like, she looks inert most of the time. She's just staring there. But her parents took the six hours of footage, and they cut together six minutes of clips of, like, Terry's eyes moving, what they said was following a balloon, or, like, her smiling at her mother, which everyone, which doctors are like, that's just a response. Like, that's just like an automatic response. Like she's not, she can't see the Mickey Mouse balloon with her eyes. And these clips went like, not, I mean, I, I'm using the word viral just because that's like the easiest way to explain it. I don't know if it was like internet or not, but it was definitely, this was like a turning point in the case, these six minutes of clips of Terry where people are like, oh no, look, that's a person who's alive. Her eyes are open. She breathes on her own. She can follow things with her eyes. And it's like, it was very misleading. The The clips that they put out were very misleading because it's six minutes above six hours. 
it's out of context. Like in six hours, she's not doing anything, you know? And like, you're putting together this clip, like this is an average day for her and that's not correct. So, um, yeah, at this point, again, she's been doing these same, her husband said, she's been doing those same little movements for over a decade with no improvement. Like, and the ruling in this case still upheld that Terry was in a persistent vegetative state and that her feeding tube could be removed. So on October 15th of 2003, her feeding tube was removed for a second time. Within a week, when the Schindler's final appeal was exhausted, State Representative Frank Atkinson of Florida and the Florida legislature passed Terry's law in an emergency session, which gave Governor Jeb Bush the authority to intervene in the case. Okay. And the New York Times pointed out something I thought was very interesting, that whenever they're making these laws that are based on people, um, the, if it's about a woman, they'll give it the woman's first name or like a little cute nickname. Like her name was Teresa, but they give it the name Terry. But when it's a man, it's always the last name. Like the man gets a little bit more dignity with their law. Like the law about, of it's like Bill Brady. It's called the Brady Bill, right? It's not called the Bill Bill or like the Jim, I think his name's Jim Brady actually, excuse me. But like for women, it's always like Terry's law, Sarah's law, whatever, or for women and kids. So it's interesting. Anyway, Governor Bush immediately ordered the feeding tube reinserted, and he sent the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to remove Shivo from hospice. She was taken to a rehab center in Clearwater where her feeding tube was surgically put back in, and then she was returned to hospice. And USA Today reported that Governor Bush said, the judge's decision, quote-unquote, breaks my heart, and noted that it often takes two decades for a death row inmate's appeals to go through the system quote, there's this rush to starve her to death, end quote, Bush said. And it's like, I just don't understand when he's saying a rush. Like this man did not have filed to have the feeding tube removed until she'd been in a vegetable for a decade. So it's like, we already know that Jeb Bush is kind of a moron. I mean, he is the please clap guy. So it's just crazy that everyone's like, well, she's only been in this coma for 10 years. What a rush to, to starve her to death. And that's also not, they're not trying to starve her to death. I think they're trying to let her die humanely. But Michael Shivo opposed the governor's move, obviously, and he was represented by the ACLU. So on May 5th, 2004, a judge ruled that Terry's law was unconstitutional and struck it down. And this was another re huge reason why people were getting involved in this conversation because it's like what we talked about with Jody Hicks a little bit. Republicans are all about get out of my life, like small government. Don't let the government control you. Have so many guns so that if the government tries to take over, we can fight back. And then they think they can like get involved in people's decisions about their life or about their reproductive rights and things like that. It's just so, the cognitive dissonance is really, really wild. And so uh, there was a lot of talk in this is like, did the government go too far? Like, should they be getting involved in this? And I mean, my opinion is no. But um, yeah, they struck down the law and then Governor Bush appealed this, but the Florida State Supreme Law uh, Court overturned the law as unconstitutional. So he had no more recourse. So poor Jeb Bush had to just like walk away with also, his toe between his legs. him pretending to care. I'm like trying to think yeah. what reason this is. Like, it's so political. weird. Fully political. There was something called like the Shivo memo that wasn't about Jeb Bush, but it was about a different politician. And it was like, essentially saying the Terry Schiavo case is a great way to like ramp up our base and get like Republican vote people to vote Republican. So fully being used as a political pawn, this woman. So in January of 2005 now, the federal Supreme Court, like the U.S. Supreme Court, refuses to hear this case. And then the next month, the Schindlers try again to have the removal stopped so they can try this new swallowing therapy. Terry is unable to swallow. It's been years determined that she cannot swallow and feed herself on her own because her parents have been trying 
this whole time to say, okay, if you remove her feeding tube, can we feed her? And it's like, she cannot swallow. Like that will not help her condition. So Judge Greer formally denied the motion and ordered the tube removal again, Friday, March 18th, my twin brother's birthday, 2005. And then there was a media tycoon named Robert Herring. I don't know who this guy is, but he offered a million dollars to Michael Schiavo if he agreed to waive his guardianship over Terry and give it to the parents. And he declines. He could have walked away with the money and just been like, I'm a bad guy, bye. But like, I'm going to take this money and go live with my family and start my life again. Because at this point, I think he has two kids with his um, new partner. And he doesn't, he declines because it is important to him for his wife to have her final wishes as he saw them be fulfilled. So the parents keep filing appeals, asking if they can try to feed her by mouth, like I, like as I said, will not work. And now the president is involved, George W. Bush, and the Republicans are in Congress trying to figure out a way to overturn this judge's ruling. And so right after Greer orders the tube removal for March of 2005, Republicans in the United States Congress subpoenaed M Michael and Terry Schiavo to testify at a congressional hearing. So obviously you're thinking, this woman is vegetative. How is she going to testify? It doesn't matter. No one thinks she's going to testify, but by calling her to testify, they make her a witness and that affords her witness protection. And that would allow for reinsertion of her feeding tube so that she can be alive until she's able to testify. Crazy, the little hoops these guys are jumping through. And so on March 20th, 2005, so at this point, they removed her uh, feeding tube on March 18th. So now it's March 20th. It's two days later. And the Senate, by unanimous consent, passed their version of a relief bill. And after the Senate approval, the House of Representatives passed an identical version of this bill, which became known as the Palm Sunday Compromise. And they transferred jurisdiction of the Shibo case to the federal courts, which would take it out of Judge Greer's hands and put it in the hands of federal courts. And then the bill was passed at 12.41 in the morning on March 21st, and George W. Bush flew to Washington, D.C. from a vacation in Texas to sign the bill into order at 1 a.m. in that morning. So it was like a big rush, because I think they're trying to save her because now she's been two days without her feeding tube. Why can't they put this much effort into anything that truly I know. can help humanity? I just, I know. Can, I, this is so confusing to me. I know, Do you remember wild. the public opinion? Was it really split? I think it was really split. I think it was really split. But I think that, you know, obviously the media stuff, it's like if you see people saw, oh, why can't her parents just keep her alive if they want to keep her alive? And it's like, well, he's saying that's not her wish, that she did not want that, you know? So I remember people talking about that. Like, well, if he doesn't want to keep her alive, then just divorce her, let her parents keep her alive, you know? And he really felt like this is not humane and not what the right thing was. And then that's that whole argument. Like, what is, what is humane? So... Now it's March 24th. She's been off the feeding tube for six days. Judge Greer denied a petition for intervention by the Florida Department of Children and Families, uh, DCF, and signed an order forbidding the department from taking possession of Terry or removing her from hospice. And he directed each and every single sheriff on the state in the state of Florida to enforce his order. So... He denied this petition from DCF, and then the order was appealed to the Second District Court of Appeals the following day, which resulted in an automatic stay under state law. So while the stay was in effect, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement was preparing to take custody of Terry and transfer her to a local hospital to have the tube put back in. But when Greer found out about the stay, he ordered it lifted 
All parties stood down. Governor Bush decided to obey the order um, despite enormous pressure from the right. And um, because he knew that if he had ignored Greer's order and attempted to remove her from the hospice, there would have been a confrontation between the Pinellas Park Police Department and the FDLE agents. Like, there would have just been, they both have orders from separate judges. Like, like one from, one has orders from the governor, one has orders from a judge. They would have had a clash. So, eventually, I believe about 13 days after her feeding tube was removed, Terry Schiavo did pass away at the Pinellas Park Hospice on March 31st, 2005, at the age of 41. Much like in the episode, the autopsy, which happened on April 1st, and it revealed extensive brain damage. Her brain weighed half of what a woman's uh, brain her age should weigh. Um, The persistent vegetative state was completely confirmed. Uh, The medical examiner, John R. Thogmartin, said there was actually no proof of the bulimia, he said. But who's to say? It could have been other extreme dieting or who who knows. But also, like, would evidence of bulimia hold for, what, 15 years at this point? Yeah, that's true, because usually it's like tooth decay and stuff like that. I don't know. I really don't know. I At this point, it's been 15 understood. years. I mean, this is why, this is, I didn't realize how high up president flying around signing bills this really was. Yeah, crazy. So Chief Medical Examiner Thogmorton wrote in his autopsy, quote, Mrs. Shivo suffered severe anoxic brain injury, the cause of which cannot be determined with reasonable medical certainty. The manner of death will therefore be certified as undetermined. So the cardiac arrest is the inciting uh, health incident, but then her cause of death is kind of undetermined, uh, even though it's like she just, her body stopped functioning. And then on June 20th, the cremated remains of Terry Schiavo were buried. I don't really know what's up with that, but apparently Michael Schiavo didn't even like tell her parents he was doing that. And the Schindler's attorney stated that the family was notified by fax only after the memorial service had happened. And they had already started getting calls from reporters. So I think that they just had had so much animosity over the back and forth of this for years and years. But yeah, it's interesting. Like I was young and like kind of paying attention to news and kind of not. I don't remember what like the public sentiment was around me. But I remember thinking like, yeah, I wouldn't want to live like that. You know, I wouldn't want to be in a persistent vegetative state with like multiple doctors saying that this is some of the worst brain damage they'd ever seen. And saying there's zero chance of ever coming back. You know, I think a lot of people, when there's like a coma, a lot of people want to believe in like a miracle and people have woken up out of comas, but persistent vegetative state, I think it's like, you're pretty far gone. And I don't know. I don't know what her parents wanted to happen. Like, I guess doctor said she could have lived another 10 years on a feeding tube. I don't know. For what? To visit? Yeah. So you guys get to visit these parents? Seem annoying as fuck, but I get it. Yeah. But yeah. he obviously cared for her. He could have had money throughout all of this time. He could have divorced her and been like, fuck off, I'm taking the million. Like, I do trust him. I don't know. Yeah. From just what you've told me, just like, look, like looking at the facts that I just heard, fuck the Republican Party, and Michael seems like a good guy. Yeah, I mean, this is like what I'm finding out later. I definitely think back in the day when it was a uh, a punchline on late night shows, it was definitely like, there was something sinister about Michael Shivo. People were like, ooh, he's trying to kill his wife. And it's like, when you actually get the dates in front of you and you're like, no, he traveled with her to California to try to get experimental treatments done for her in the first few years after it happened. Like, he was trying. It was like, 
eight years went by and he was like, I think we're done. And then like, it wasn't until 2000 that really like the, the court cases started up. So like a decade of trying things. And he was like, I don't think this is how she wanted to live. So I don't know. That's the story. And that's, um, you know, it's very clearly what they based the whole Cora storyline on with a lot more, obviously, SVUification of it with the guy being a rapist and having a insurance policy on her. But, you know, she died in March of 2005. This episode came out November of 2005. Like, it's definitely connected. And um, I think it's like an interesting way that they weaved it in to the show because it's such a huge topic that everyone was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I could tell you about it. And now we have a really great guest I'm excited about. Well, because I also, yeah, we obviously have a good guest. We always do. Um, Not to be too cocky. But I wonder if the movie Kill Bill, like, changed people's mind or, like, if that kind of motivates people's decisions. You know I still haven't seen it. I don't even know what you're talking about. Oh, I forgot. I forgot. (laughs) Huge touchstones. I'm like, is there a right to die issue in Kill Bill? I gotta watch it. I gotta (laughs) fucking watch it. You're about to kill me. All right. (laughs) I would be happy to watch it with you. Uh, But yeah, uh, enjoy our guests, everybody. Okay, guys, listen, I know that we use the word legend a lot on this podcast, but we just, I don't know what to tell you. We just get a lot of legends who want to talk to us. And today is no exception. This actress has been working since she was a child in little films by directors, you know, new directors that maybe you've heard of, uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, She was in the movie The Birds, The Children's Hour, and perhaps you've seen her in horror classics like Alien or Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Today, though, you know her as beleaguered mother, Virginia Kennison. Please enjoy and take in and absorb our conversation with the amazing Veronica Cartwright. Yay, Veronica. Huge deal. This is a huge deal for us. Thank you. Well, you know, it was was funny because um, I looked it up on, um, on Hulu. And I found it. I found the show. So I actually rewatched it again because it was so many years ago that I did it. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of our guests say that they're, they they never watched it the first time it came out because a lot of people hate to watch themselves. And then they're like, we want, they, they got to rewatch it for our podcast. So we hope you gave, we gave you a nice trip down memory lane. Oh, except what was I thinking with my hair? (laughs) That's actually our first question is chunky blonde highlights. Was it you or wardrobe? Oh my God. (laughs) Now, you know, it was a thing I went through. I don't know. I got a lot of work that way. Um, I think it, I have no idea what I was thinking because it looked awful. I think <laughs> but, it made you look kind of though like a little bit like eccentric and probably made you stand out, you know? It's probably it was a smart idea for Cal. Well, it was of the time. I had chunky highlights. What you know what I, I mean? Know. Like I that mean, was what we did. Yeah. I mean, it was what was it, 2007? Yeah. Uh, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it was just a thing that we did. I mean. <laughs> and then while watching it, are there, before we ask our questions, were there any like memories or feelings that came to you while watching the episode? Well, the girl, the girl who plays my daughter, Tina Holmes is a terrific actress. And so it was really great to work with her. And then a couple of years later, she played my daughter in um, Cold Case as well. Oh my God, so I love it that. was like a reunion. And then I think I was blonde. Um, <laughs> Just, you know, change up so much. I wonder if they saw your SVU and saw the mother-daughter <laughs> chemistry. 
I doubt it. <laughs> I, I doubt that very much. But it was, it was, I was glad I rewatched it because I hadn't realized it was actually a murder case um, that he had murdered my daughter, making her well, she was anorexic, mm-hmm. and then of course having alcohol poisoning, and um, going after her because of that. So, or him because of that. Yeah, I, I, it was a very sad story. It's really, it's really sad. sad. It's sad to think that you can just meet or date or befriend one person, and they can truly change your life for and for the worst forever. It's just absolutely because really she totally loved him, and then and then he would just he was just. He was a dog. Yeah. He, he really was awful, his character. But he, he was a great great guy to work with. Oh, oh. <laughs> Superman. <laughs> but um, no, it was really an interesting twist, I thought. Mm-hmm. So, and then he ended up, of course, being such a nasty person. Yeah. And, um, and, and was so cruel to her. Yeah. And everyone saw it and she just could but not she didn't. see it. Well, how many people do we know? You know, we keep yeah. saying, no, don't date this guy. He's really not a cool guy. <laughs> oh, but I love him. Well, tough shit. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I know. And people, uh, so many people just don't heed their friends and family's advice, even though they're the people that know you the best. So it's, I know, you know, well, it's tough. You know, you go with your heart, I yes, guess. Yes. I guess a lot of people lead with their heart. One of the scenes that I was really curious about filming is when you are with Tina Holmes and she's on the respirator and she's like blinking, but slowly. How was that filming with the blinking? Uh, yeah. How was that filming the hospital? Well, um, well, you do believe, I believe that when you see blinking, your first initial reaction would be that you would think that they were alive and breathing. And they are breathing, but they're on all of these tubes and stuff like that. But it's, uh, it must be very, very disconcerting to have to pull your kid off of, you know, life support when you, they look so normal. Yeah. Yeah. A friend of mine's father um, went in for, he broke his hip. He was 94. So, um, but he broke his hip. Totally with it, guy. This is a guy that used to work out and everything. And um, he had a stroke, apparently, when he was under the anesthesia. But he was breathing by himself. His color was good. He looked totally like himself. And the doctor was screaming at him. And they'd go and they'd scream at him, to thinking maybe he... And he lived like that for a week. He wasn't on a ventilator or anything. He was just... He must have just decided, okay, now it's time to go. But yeah. I mean, to see somebody have the color in their face and be like what you think is, you know, they're alive and um, it's weird. Yeah. And when you were doing the scenes where you got emotional cry, the tears, were you thinking of this case or do you go to, or like, yeah, are you within the character? Do you have to think of your own personal kind of Oh God, no. Motivation? No, I, um, I actually learned a long time ago when I did The Birds, watching Jessica Chandy work and being drugged around the house with the birds flying down. And you know what? If you just live in the situation and make it real, I mean, how many times can you think of a dead dog? I mean, yeah. really. <laughs> um, it just doesn't work. You've got to listen. You know, you yeah. have to 
listen to what the other character's saying and live in the moment. I, I just find it so impressive when you can do that, that restrained crying. Like, I bet I could get myself to cry, but I'd probably just work myself up. But you just like, when they tell you, hey, it turns out he wasn't lying. She did say she didn't want to live in a vegetative state. You just have this one tear that pops out onto your cheek. It was like, really? Really great work. (laughs) Well, thank you. I just don't know how you do this like restrained thing where you let one little tear squeak out. I didn't think of it as being (laughs) restrained, but I I was quite impressed with that too. Um, No, it's so weird because I heard when I was like 15 or 16 years old that Catherine Hepburn used to be able to cry from one eye or the other eye. And I thought, oh my God, how does she do that? And I would practice in front of the mirror, you know. And I guess it is that you could do a muscle thing, but it's just not the same as if you just are in the moment and um, you have to make it real. I mean, and if the other person you're working with is there, I don't know. I just use the other person yeah, and make it as real as I can for myself. And if you just listen and watch, it can be there. Yeah. Um, have you ever, you don't have to name any names, but curious if you've ever been acting across from someone that's just not bringing it at the level that you would like them to be bringing it. <laughs> <laughs> and how you deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what can you do? Um, I mean, you can always find something you are getting from the other person, I think. I have never been have it happen to myself, though I do know that it has happened to people. I remember Richard Dreyfus telling me that he was doing the same with somebody who just, they were just not doing anything. So he said to them, excuse me, could you just stand over there to the right? I'm getting more from the brick wall. <laughs> and I mean, I always thought, oh, God, that's totally classic. But the thing is, a lot of times, you know, you're, you're looking at a little white dot. Yes, maybe the actor, when you're doing your close-ups and stuff like that, they're behind the camera. So you have an eye line, but half the time you can't see them. So if you haven't picked up your emotionality and, and your things that are going on, then, you know, yeah. you're up shit's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Well then, uh, the flip side of the cr- of the crying, maybe not the flip side, but a different a different uh, part of this episode where you got to do what we consider one of the high honors of being on an SVU episode, which is a courtroom outburst. You got to do that amazing. So how was that? I did. Um, <laughs> yeah, you got to scream bastard. That's exciting <laughs> <laughs> on television yeah. in two thousand and seven. <laughs> Um, and maybe it was right after what's his name showed his butt on Hill Street Blues. Remember that? Oh, I, uh, that was a big, no, I do, do remember you mean that. Dennis, that do you mean the, Dennis Franz on Dennis, NYPD Blue? Yes, yes. When he took his pants that off. That was such a big uh, moment. Uh, a huge, a huge moment. I, I mean, so maybe this was so, a bastard. Oh my gosh. It was really daring. Um, yeah, I mean, there he was. He was barefaced lying. He was just making stuff up as far as I was concerned. I didn't know that she had witnessed this accident. And as far as I was concerned, he was making it up so that he could unplug her. And I never had a good feeling about him. So I don't know. I just sort of made it easy. 
And it was nice to work with Terry Gar too. Oh, I was going to ask you. She's like a legend. Yeah, I love her. I know. She Terry and I did a show years ago together, and um, with Michael, um, uh, Mike Farrell, and he was accused of being um, of, of molesting children. And we have this like little seven-year-old daughter. And it was totally false accusations, but she played the lawyer that was, um, or the newspaper person that was coming in and questioning. Well, I opened up the door and I looked at her and the two of us started laughing. It it was just absolutely horrible. We couldn't get three lines out without bursting into the, and we were hysterical. Finally, John Evnett, the director said, you girls get in that bathroom and work it out. (laughs) I mean, mean, because it was ridiculous. So she's a, we were reminiscing about that. She's terrific. She's such a great person and it's and and you know she has ms and so she um was in a wheelchair not the whole time but um the director of photography also had an infliction where he was in a wheelchair and um you know she she felt a little uncomfortable. he said look we've got this entire system down because they had ramps, they fly out those, they put the ramps in, they were up the courthouse, every single thing. He said, just follow me. And so she did. And um, they tried to fire him at one point and the entire cast and crew said, no, if you, if he leaves, we leave. So he, he direct, uh, he was cinematographer for years. And so that was very, very cool. I thought, wow. It's good to know that SVU is ahead of their time in being able to accommodate everyone, everyone to be able to work at their best like abilities. That's like nice to hear about that kind of thing. Yes. And I don't know, it, it, was it a connection? Did you meet Neil Bear on ER and then he reached out to do this part or are these non these do not connect? They probably don't. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> There's well, so much ER SVU crossover yeah. that we always assume that Neil Bear was just kind of plucking people from the ER days. And he just loves good actresses. He's always uh, when we talk to him, it seems like you'd be someone he was obsessed with. But oh, good, yeah. Well, remind him. <laughs> yeah, <well. laughs> remember that woman you were obsessed with? She did the ER. Uh, well, another person famously, we we saw that your sister. Um, acted did you guys ever act together and then while you guys were acting were you competitive (laughs) were you supportive how was it both being like stars so young well Angela was three and a half um (laughs) because we emigrated here from well we were born in England and then we emigrated to Canada and we were in Canada but my dad always wanted to come to America and for some unknown reason Los Angeles (laughs) and um so we drove cross country and we moved into an apartment in El Segundo. And my dad was a technical artist and it was across from Rocketdyne. Actually, that particular place was across from the airport, but they worked. Um, well, my mother didn't know anybody. I mean, we didn't even have a telephone. And um, so she asked the landlady if she knew how they could meet people. And so the landlady says, well, your kids are awfully cute. The girl, the lady down the street, her daughter does modeling and stuff. So why don't you talk to her? 
what possessed my mother? I have no idea. <laughs> but she did. And the phone calls used to come through the manager's office, you know, like for interviews. Well, in those days, they used to do these things called cattle calls. And the cattle calls were every child, you know, under a certain age would go in. I went in for this part that Angela went up for, which was insane. I mean, I was, what, six and a half, seven, and she was three and a half. And it was somebody up there likes me with Paul Newman and Pierre Angeli. And she got it. The first job she went on, she got. And I had long braids and thousands of freckles and blue eyes. And I used to do all of these Kellogg's commercials. I did cornflakes. I did Rice Krispies. I did sugar snacks, different, all these different things. But we were never really in competition with each other because we looked so different. We did get to work together on the um, Alfred Hitchcock um, hour, and we did an episode called the Schwartz Metaclune Method, and it was with Hermione Gingold, and we got to play sisters, and so that was fun. Oh, I bet that was great. And I did the Children's Hour, which one was of my Shirley favorite McLean. plays of all time. I well, it's a movie too. Yeah, you, yeah. That was a big thing in high school. We read it and it was just, it kind of changed my life in a way. That show uh, means a lot to me. Well, it's inter- I went to a high school and um, they showed the movie and we discussed it. Uh, so that was kind of uh, interesting. Because um, you were in it, the movie that they showed? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is wild. <sighs> yeah, because it was a, one of those things, you know, it, that came up to, um, and they asked me if I would do it. I said, sure, that'd be great. So we watched the movie and then we discussed it afterwards, which, you know, was really sort of ahead of its time. I mean, talking about lesbianism, I mean, people were so uptight. I, what did I do that? 1960, 61. Yeah. We did that movie and um, people pulled their kids out of doing the movie once they found out what it was about. And it was just weird. But we had always taken these sort of little singing and dancing classes and acting classes where we did little plays on the side with Frank Weika and Bill Lockwood. But we ended up being really good friends with them. We'd go over, they had Siamese cats that used to be able to open doors and stuff. We always thought it was fascinating. (laughs) And they were just really nice guys. So my mom says to me, this is just like Frank and Bill, only two women. Well, that seemed perfectly fine to me. I mean, they seem to be totally normal, which when I have to tell the lie about seeing them kiss was me really telling the lie about seeing something. I mean, because it was, you know, just like Frank and Bill on like two women. I mean, my mom was pretty cool. Yeah, she sounds like she was very progressive. Yeah. (laughs) Later on, (laughs) (laughs) well, also your character in the children's hour is named Rosalie, which is my daughter's name, and I love that little connection. Yes. Um, But can you so tell us about working with Alfred Hitchcock? I was, I mean, was that we've never been able to ask? We've never thought we would ever ask anyone on our podcast, (laughs) like working with Alfred Hitchcock. Well, you know, I was twelve, and um, I thought he was just terrific. I. He never was intimidating to me. I mean, I guess Tippy had an entirely different relationship with him. But I was 12 and I I asked him questions. My first meeting was a request to meet him in his bungalow um, at Universal Studios. And I had already done 
two or three Alfred Hitchcock TV shows, but they were sort of unrelated. And um, I was born in Bristol, England, and it turned out to be where his favorite wine cellar was. So, um, of course, he proceeded to give me names of wine, but at 12, I didn't <laughs> whip out my pad and start write, writing those things down. Um, I wish I had. And he was just a very, he was just great. So I never felt intimidated. I would ask him questions about how they did stuff like the birds on the jungle gym. A lot of them were cardboard or across the tops of the um, wires, you know, the telephone wires and stuff like that. But then real birds were mixed in with them. Um, And he says, well, if you see movement, you assume everything is alive. And it's absolutely true. To this day, I can watch that movie and think I found a fake bird and then it moves. I mean, it's fascinating. And um, when we go to leave, we're, we're walking out of that door, but the door, there was no door. So I asked him about, well, there's no door here. He says, well, if there was a door, I wouldn't be able to see you now, would I? So let's show her, Rod. And then Rod Taylor bends down and he mimed opening the door and the big shadow comes across our face and all of a sudden we're in light and there was the door. I mean, and he says, you see, this is the magic of movies. Now, so I feel incredibly privileged that I have had those treats uh, to him because, you know, people have a, a weird reputation or with older women. Yeah, most people can't say they've had those kind of experiences. Do you have any other stories from the birds that you'd like to share? On my 13th birthday, they threw me an entire cast and crew birthday party, which was a total surprise. And huge big cake. And uh, Jessica Tandy gave me a sweater and Tippy gave me a set of lovebirds. And I used to sit and have tea every afternoon with Alfred Hitchcock at four o'clock. Everything shut down for half an hour while he would sit and have his tea and gather his thoughts. And so I would do that with him. So he had a woman, Peggy Robinson, who was his assistant, bring out the tea and stuff like that. So he goes, Peggy, and she hands him this board, white board, and a black crayon. And he wrote to the woman I love. Veronica drew his face and then signed his name. So that was just wow, so cool. Do you still so have cool. any of those? I do. Okay, honey, great, it's on great, archival great. paper, <laughs> and I actually lent it to the Hollywood Museum. They were doing a whole thing on Alfred Hitchcock oh, wow. and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, and you, I've never been a great one to save a bunch of stuff, so that was nice. I did. I saved uh, for ages the pod from Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Ah. but it moved from like three different houses and somewhere along the line it disappeared. And that was sad because I I really liked that pod. Yeah, You've done so much (laughs) iconic horror, you know, you've been in such important things. I have. I've been very lucky being... Um, but, you know, it's the parts, too. I mean, I've been lucky that and it seems a lot of the time I am the sort of savior. I am the smart one. If anybody listened to me when we did Alien, we'd be fine. <laughs> I mean, I did not know that I was going to get, you know, whacked by uh, 
by Donald Sutherland at the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I was told one thing and then Phil told um, Donald a different thing. So I, that was a total reaction. I had no idea that he was going to be a pod because there was nobody around. I thought, this is perfect. I need and I check out everything. I mean, I discover how I can, you know, sleep and I guess I took a lot of bennies. I don't know. Um, <laughs> that's why I was so emotional. But I mean, I have really, my character really have been, I've been the one who says, you know, what if this was the case? Or let's draw straws and get off of the ship. There's, there's obviously something out there that's killing us. And nobody listens. <laughs> <laughs> It's very sad. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you if there are any roles that you're still dying to play and maybe it's just somebody who people listen to. <laughs> maybe you get to make the big suggestion and everybody goes, <laughs> you're suge- right. And then oh, they all do it. yeah, that's it. Uh, I don't know if there's... I mean, I love working, so... Yeah. I'm just... Um, I think I've been able to play some really terrific parts and there's movies that... Aren't, haven't been that good or nobody's ever seen. And sometimes I think it's some of my best work. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's like, but that's okay. I mean, I feel good about well, it. Well, I saw you kind of semi-recently in one of my favorite shows. The audience of this podcast knows I talk about the show all the time, but I love Bosch. And you were oh, yes. like a... That was such a like terrifying storyline that you were in. <laughs> and I was like, like, your character doesn't come <laughs> to a great end, but... <laughs> Fabulous. Did you love Bosch, working on Bosch with that scary, scary man? <laughs> oh, yeah. He, um, yes. I mean, and, and I, it was really a great part. I mean, I couldn't believe it. And those glasses, those horrible glasses that I had to wear that I couldn't see out of. They had sort of given me a little guiding, put things on to like the table, follow it to the end of the table, and then make make a beeline to this other dot over here because I couldn't <laughs> see a thing out of those glasses. So, um, but she was a, she was a fun character. You don't get to play those yeah. very often. And, and Willenverse, he was just great. I, I really like him. Titus is just, he's terrific. And he's an SVU so, alum. He's been on multiple episodes of SVU. Oh uh, uh-huh. yeah. Because, you know, a lot of times they won't rehire you for stuff. It's like I did a, a, a closer and then they did that continuation of a closer that with uh, Mary McDonald. Um, and I loved that show. So I thought, and the part came up and they wouldn't hire me because nine years earlier, I had done a closer with dark hair. Huh. What a stupid rule. SVU doesn't follow that. SVU doesn't follow that. They'll they'll probably have you back. Keep your phone, keep your phone closed. I I watch it. (laughs) I do. It's funny because I I didn't watch it. I watched some of the other stuff. But I I, she's wonderful, Mariska Haggerty. She is she's a real character. She's just down to earth. She's really funny. And um, you know, she likes her Shrapsburg. Chocolate, dark chocolate. Oh, we've never gotten that oh, little tidbit. <laughs> yes, she does. She has to have a couple of chunks every day. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought she was terrific. She's great. I mean, the whole show was really a good show. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, so this is like a, a, a thing that I just read in your Wikipedia and then I confirmed it, that you're on the cover of the Scissor Sisters album, I Don't Feel Like Dancing, which is a favorite song of my daughter's and mine that we listen to all the time together. And I was like, no way. How did you get involved with the Scissor Sisters? I love them. 
<laughs> I have always paid for, you know, a certain amount of $5 a month or something so that my telephone will not be listed. This was my home phone. Well, I paid for it for years. And then I get this call one day and it's Jake Shearing. And Jake, he goes, hi, is this Veronica? I went, who is this? And he goes, oh, well, I'm Jake Shears. I'm with the Scissor Sisters. And uh, please don't hang up on me. I'm not a stalker. I said, well, how did you get this number? He goes, I just looked it up in the directory. Oh, my gosh. And I called up and I said, well, why am I paying all this money each month for all of these years to have an unlisted phone number? And But anyway, so um, he asked me if I would do the cover of their, you know, it's the elevator one. Yeah. Where you, we all come out. And I said, sure. And it turned out to be Rocky Shank, who did the photography. And they dressed me in Armani. And then they gave me that long gray wig. Yeah. And then we drove around in a taxi cab and they took pictures. I mean, I had so much fun. Oh. It was just, it was so, so cool. And um, yeah, so I'm on the, the LP, the little uh, 45. Yeah, I love it. That's so, yeah. I like, I mean, when I read it, I was like, I'm going to look this up. And then I zoomed in, I saw you. Yeah, I was like, that. there she is. Very, very elegant. Yes. It was really fun. You look like so a, much. yeah, you look like a cult leader or something. Just like very, <laughs> you know, like beautiful long gray hair and like, yeah. It was it was really fun to do. And then um, I stayed in touch with uh, Jake, um, I'm good friends with Clinton Loop, who's um, Coco Peru. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, so um, Rocky Shank and um, Coco and I went to see the Scissor Sisters at a pop-up show in Santa Monica. Oh, my God. We had heard about it because Rocky stayed in touch because of the the music end of it because he did he did Adele's first video and stuff like that so the three of us went to the show it was so cool I mean they were just so they're so great and afterwards we were walking around and this guy comes up to me he goes you are my favorite actress I just love you I said David Grohl <laughs> Oh, cool. I mean, <laughs> my girlfriend is so jealous that that, that happened. That is so funny. Um, I love that you're friends with Coco Peru. That's I'm, amazing. I'm dead. <laughs> I cannot even. I actually like, Googled to make sure I was right. And then I was like, oh my yeah. gosh. Well, I met her doing a movie called Straight Jacket, and, um, which is a hysterically silly movie. Richard Day did this movie. And, and, and I talk like I had this little black wig and I talk like Jane Russell and everything's a mile a minute and I'm the agent of the... <laughs> well, every person who was gay in the movie played a straight person and everybody who was straight plays a gay person. And, and she plays this woman um, that's supposed to be married to this head of the studio, Coco. Uh, her name is Beatrice in the movie. And um, she keeps asking me if I play golf. Well, I live on a golf course. And you have to just see the movie is short and it's absolutely hysterical. It's called Straight Jacket. So that's where I met Coco. And um, of course, I go and see her shows. And he's a great guy. He's really terrific. Yeah. I didn't know if maybe you met Coco because you played, did you play Jack's mom on Will and Grace? Uh huh. Yeah. So, and Coco was always on Will and Grace in and out. So, yeah. Well, I thought I would do more too. I was <laughs> very shocked. And, you know, it's so weird because I, I replaced somebody on that show. So I had, I had the Monday, we read the read through of the script. And on Tuesday, 
we they took my measurements for wardrobe. I did wardrobe. I had a lady following me around, a script supervisor following me around so I could get all those words because we shot that night on Tuesday night. I mean, it was like so quick and such a turnaround. Oh, my God. And uh, I, I had a ball on that show. It was really fun. Yeah. And I really thought that they'd have me back because most people thought I did three shows because there was so many parts to that one particular episode. Yeah. And they never, and then they thought of bringing me back. And uh, he was supposed to be shaving his legs, and I'm doing a pod thing, but they they never did it, so that was a shame. <laughs> well, you only were you only worked on about seventy thousand other projects after that. So, <laughs> well, one of the other um, things we have, well, scary movie too. The scary movies were meant a lot to me. <laughs> so, while you were shooting, oh my god, you had very strange taste. <laughs> A scary movie too. My audition for Scary Movie Two was insane. <laughs> um, I had to go up to this building. It's a very old building. It's a beautiful building on Highland and Hollywood Boulevard, and go into a room and sing "Hello Dolly" at the top of my lungs. And um, <laughs> oh my god, right? And they kept saying louder. Bigger, bigger, louder. And here I am, hello. I mean, it was just absolutely insane. I come out and there's a UPS man who's just, <laughs> and he looks at me like I have lost my mind. <laughs> I mean, it was just the look on his face. So originally I was supposed to be Marlon Brando. Jimmy Woods was supposed to be Marlon Brando. And then Marlon Brando got sick. So oh. then Jimmy, Jimmy did it. Have you ever been starstruck? You've worked with so many people. Has anyone ever made you like, oh my goodness? Well, I'll tell you, Shirley MacLaine, actually, Ooh. she was, ended up being my mentor, sort of. Um, she was so terrific to me when we were doing the Children's Hour. Um, and she would give me little tips. She would say, honey, don't, don't lose your tears on off camera stuff. Wait until the camera comes on you. Otherwise, you know, you, you won't be happy. <laughs> it was like all these odd little tips. When I did the breakdown scene, um, which was a bit cruel, I think, to do to an 11 year old, what they did. I kept, I, I mean, and you know, I'd worked quite a bit. So you sort of build up and you build up and William Wyler says, okay, we're, we're going to be shooting this one. So you pour it on a little more. And then he turned to the cinematographer and he said, um, okay, now shoot it. At which point I had rehearsed it like four or five times. I was, I didn't even know who was acting anymore when I did that. But she was the first person to come over and hug me and tell me how wonderful I was. And and she, she was just, I don't know, she was really great to me. And I didn't realize it until years later and I had a dream when that she was there and I walked. It was in Las, like Las Vegas and I walked down the full length of the swimming pool to tell her that I wanted to, you know, because I, I had seen her do. When they did, in those days, you used to have to do wardrobe on film, and they would, you know, it was you put on a pedestal and you spin around. And we were told to stay away from her because she told dirty jokes. And um, I was there because I was next up, and I thought she was just slowly turning, and she was had such 
rapport with the crew. And I thought, that's who I want to be like. I want to have that kind of a rapport with the crew and all of the people. So she was, she really was like a mentor. Well, I was doing a play at the, um, this theater that the music center had bought on uh, Vine Avenue, Hollywood and Vine. And um, it had to close down because of the Christmas parade. So I saw she was doing a one woman show over on Wilshire Boulevard. So I decided I was going to go see her. So I watched the show and it was fantastic. And then I went backstage and I said, can I see Shirley MacLaine? And are you on the list? I said, no. He goes, well, I said, would you just tell, I worked with her years ago. Would you just tell her Veronica Cartwright? Next thing I know, the guy goes, well, she, she will see you. And I walked in and she goes, honey, I have followed your career. And I went, oh my God. And I, I said, and I had a dream. I mean, it was like so weird because she does all of those past life things and stuff like that and talks about dreams and stuff in her book. So it was really cool. Oh my gosh, she's so funny. I love her. Yes. Pain to keep your name out of the yellow pages? Iconic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love these badass bitches we get to talk to who've really just been working. Working successfully, crushing it, staying fun, you know, self-aware, knew her highlights were wild. Um, It's it's nice. Yeah. Talented, hardworking, badass. Yeah. And a cool episode. Yeah, definitely. And a good crime. I didn't know what she looked like. I can't believe it was so high up that the president was involved in last minute pluggings and unpluggings of like, one bulimic woman in Florida. It's kind of wild. You know, it's like, I just think back then, the issues that the Republicans would like latch onto because they knew it would like invigorate their base were just like not as, now we know what it is. Now we know it's like, oh, guns and, you know, whatever. Uh, Drag, you know, how drag is killing children and all that. Like, it's so obvious, but this kind of thing, I don't know, this right to death argument was in the conversation, but... Not necessarily, maybe it was our age, but not necessarily something we would know about. No, it was like a walking punchline, I feel like, for someone like, that's what I saw it as. Yeah. I didn't know the ins and outs of the case. No, and a lot of things that are punchlines, like Monica Lewinsky and, you know, all these things we've learned later are not. Like, the way Amber Heard is a punchline right now, it's kind of like... I think in five years, people are going to be like, um, that was fucked up. Yeah. And I didn't realize how long he waited, like eight to 10 years denying money. Like, I don't know why anyone thought he was a shady dude. I know. But overall, a great episode. Unfortunately, the episode people call the Dean Kane episode. It's the uh, Dean Kane know, episode. It's the Dean Kane episode forever. This is what it is. It's like, um, the like, this group, like Adeen Kane and all the other people we talk about that become like right-wing lunatics, it's men that were on their journey to become successful and then didn't become as successful as they wanted and then they blame everyone but their themselves. Right. Or they can't just like be fulfilled with their lives. And I fail that in comedy. Like any of the dudes that become like super alt-right lunatics, they always, they're just people that like are not where they want to be in their career. And right. that's how I feel with Dean Kane's ass. 
But change your attitude. There's the SVU episodes that's the Dean Kane episode. You're doing great. I don't get it. And what'd you say, Sabato Jr.? They're all in the same camp. Um, yeah, Scott Bayo, yeah. Antonio Sabato Jr. All they of all have dudes. better versions of themselves out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we do, we have Tony Danza. We don't need a Scott Bayo. And he didn't realize that. <laughs> You know, we don't need an Antonio so Sabato Jr. We have a, what the fuck's his name? Antonio Banderas. You know what I mean? Like we don't. Different Antonios. Just, yeah. Yeah. So get your personality right. We have better yeah. versions of you. Or Ricky Martin. Antonio Banderas and Ricky Martin were both soap guys. Look at where Living Ricky Martin is Vita now. Loca is so good. It holds up. Anytime <laughs> it comes up anywhere, it's like a, it's like, I would see him. I would see him in concert too. Live in I La bet Vida it's a Loca, good show. baby. I, that's what you learn. Like people that are so successful for decades, it's going to be a good show, whether you like or know the music or not. Yeah. Because when I did that Papa Roach cruise, I was like, wow, Papa Roach ain't bad. They're pretty good. <laughs> Papa These are Roach cr- cruise. <laughs> oh, my former sister-in-law was probably on that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I didn't know someone got divorced. Oh, yeah. Jared's brother. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. was just thinking of your siblings. Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not on my side. So far, everyone's held it together. And again, if Colin Clink is listening and any of your friends, like, get dumped and need a plus one, I would attend your wedding. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to put friends. it out here first. You and Rachel are both, like, happy Vying to be there. to get in the wedding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't need an invite, but if someone drops out, I don't know. If someone drops out and you've got a steak that needs to get eaten, she'll find <laughs> yeah. her way. She'll yeah. find her way there. Um, so yeah, this episode post-mortem, what have we learned? I mean, unfortunately, men like this are going to prey on women like Cora. And I feel sad about that. I'm like, you deserve better. And uh, it's it sucks that... We were really she- on a roll. I don't know why we brought you, why you had to bring it back down to the sadness of the episode. We Sorry. really like recovered. <laughs> we got I thought we laughing. should go back we to like... Good. I didn't know. I thought we should go back from my brother's wedding to uh, the sadness of SVU. But w- <laughs> I don't know. What else? What else? Uh, Oh, we forgot one really funny detail at the Backstreet Boy concert. Um, I, I knew there was wine and beer. We had a great server. And I just said, listen, we have any booze or what? Like pre-made cocktails? What do you oh, have? Yeah. And he goes, we have absolutely no alcohol, except you could take shots of Fireball. And that's the only shot that Kara takes. So we were The like, only shot I will take is fucking Fireball. And this is all, the only booze he has is cinnamon whiskey that I drink. <laughs> yeah, so I got a couple rounds of Fireball whiskey. Uh, fireball. What did I say? I guess I'm tongue tied. He kept it, calling it like drunk? fire water, and I was like, he I couldn't don't think understand that's what it's called sir. because there yeah. is like a new fire water, right? Isn't that like canned? Co- like fire water is something, or it's like a can. Yeah, it might be a canned cocktail thing. I also kept singing in sync instead of the Backstreet Boys, and I don't know why. Not during the concert, but in my head, I have like it's fucked up. I keep singing that. Oh, also, there's a Backstreet Boys song on DNA. And the beginning of the song starts out where he goes, what am I, the sex police? Or what are you, the sex police? What is- yeah, it's funny. <laughs> it's so good. Um, it's called New Love. And it, it makes me laugh. So had to share Yeah, it. they were really proud of this album that they dropped in 2019. And unfortunately, the world didn't really get to hear it because of COVID and the pandemic. So they were taking us back and definitely letting us know about it. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, they really were plugging this album so hard. <laughs> 
Um, any other Backstreet Boy uh, things, or should I? Should we dive back into the depression of the episode, or should I just move on to what would Sister Beg do? Merch. I don't know. It's just like it was nice being um, there. Yeah, and I knew the words to every song. Like that's fun. It's fun to sing along. You know, the fact that I don't, I haven't listened to them regularly in a while, and like the fact that my brain is like, oh, be like immediately is like fucked up. Like, yeah. no wonder I don't remember anything. My f- brain is filled with Backstreet Boy lyrics from 20 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> yeah, well, you also told me the story about how when you were a teenager, you came home from school for a video premiere that they used to do. If you're on a TRL. young person, they used to they used to premiere videos on like TRL and your parents had locked the house or something and you just ripped the doorknob off the door or something yeah. and ripped a hole in your door to get into the house and watch the video. Yeah. That's wild behavior. Well, I I think what was wild for Kara was she was like, so did you get in trouble? And I was like, I didn't, I don't really get, I never got in trouble. (laughs) I was like, my life would have been over. Like if you damaged something in my house, you were in so much trouble. Truly, they came home and there was no doorknob in the back door. But I forgot my keys and I had to see the video. There was just- forgot your keys. Oh my God. I obviously tried to climb through the windows first. Like I had a routine of when, if I forgot the keys, but- they need to hide a key over there. All right. <laughs> we need to hide a key. Those communists, they would never trust a key outside. <laughs> a key in a rock? No um, fucking way. Okay, do your job. Do the do it. Okay. Do the sister peg. All right. Let's get into what would Sister Peg do? Our weekly segment where we tell you guys, uh, give you an organization, a book, a link, something that can help give you more information about uh, to the topic that we ta- uh, touched on in today's episode. So today, I'd like to point out the uh, organization Death with Dignity, which is an organization focused on end-of-life advocacy and policy reform. Their mission centers on improving how people with terminal illnesses die and making sure that all Americans have the freedom to make their own end-of-life decisions, which I think is very important. And actually, a friend of mine who recently passed, specifically, I believe, moved to a state where they had that so that she could be in control of her own decisions. And I think it's kind of nuts that the government gets involved in that. So I like this organization that um, works to, you know, change policy about that. So they have different campaigns you can join in on. There's petitions to uh, drop residency requirements for death with dignity to passing death with dignity in Massachusetts. So there's all different kinds of things you can get involved in if you go check out their website, which is deathwithdignity.org. And if you'd like to help out, sign a petition, learn more, you can um, head to their website. And as always, that is uh, going to be in our show notes for today's episode. And all of our What Would Sister Peg Do's are always in a highlight on our Instagram page uh, that is called WWSPD. Wow, you really said a lot of information and you did it well. Thank you. Um, And next week, join us for Limitations, Season 1, Episode 14. Thanks for listening. We love you. See you live soon, hopefully. Bye. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmesseduppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmesseduppod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Annalise Nelson. And to our mixer, John Bradley. 
and to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun, dun! dun. <laughs> Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.